0: Hello and welcome to Disneyversity, the podcast crash course through the history of Disney's animated classics, where we talk about some of the most famous movies ever made that most of us probably don't know nearly as well as we think. Each episode we'll be moving forward in time through the legendary Disney catalog, watching every feature film in the Walt Disney Animation Studios vault, from Snow White to Strange World, seeing how they stand up today, how they pushed the boundaries of animation shaped the legacy of Walt Disney and the wider Disney brand, and how they influence pop culture at large. <laughs> A brief disclaimer, this is not an official Disney podcast, but all of these films are available to stream now on Disney+, so come on, watch along with us, and let's learn together. I'm film journalist Ben Travis, and while I have opening night tickets to see Willie the Whale's operatic review, I'm not your Disney versity lecturer. No, this week I'm a biscuit snaffling raccoon picking up every single crumb I can get my little grabby hands on as we watch through 61 films and counting. Thankfully, I'm joined by an animation academic whose big brain affords him a life of sheer luxury, eating cherries in the bath while being waited on hand and foot. I am, of course, talking about Dr. Sam Summers, our guide through one of the most groundbreaking and beloved animated movie catalogues of all time. Hey Sam, how are you doing? I'm pretty good. I am well, in general.
1: This podcast's coming out a little late and I feel like I should confess to the listeners why that is. It's because I've become addicted to the 2000 Game Boy Color game Wario Land 3. Um, If you pay attention to the world of gaming news, you'll know it was a big deal. This week, Nintendo brought out all the old Game Boy games on the Switch. And I thought, oh, I'll I'll pick up a few of them that I've never played before. Probably just spend a few minutes on them. They're not very big games. They're all for the Game Boy. And I've basically spent every spare moment these last two weeks playing Wario Land 3. (laughs) Wario's got his clutches into me like I'm some of his beloved treasure that he's always trying to grab onto. Uh, that's what you do in the games. You hunt for treasure. Yeah, so that's that's why. I'm sorry. Ben keeps texting me saying, we've got a pod. We've got a pod. I'm like, no, warrior needs his treasure.
0: Wario needs his treasure, so does Wario have his treasure now? Is that why we're recording this now, because Wario finally has his treasure?
1: Yep, I I finished it this morning. Every night before I go to bed, and every morning when I wake up, I pick up the switch from my bedside table, and I do a couple of levels of Wario Land 3, and this morning I finally did it, got the treasure, beat the final boss, who's a giant evil clown. Nice. And
0: now here we are, able finally to do something else. Well, I think that's one of many reasons why we had to delay this episode. Listeners, thank you for holding on. There have been all sorts of factors that have meant we haven't got round to recording this one as quickly as we would have liked. But we are here now and we're ready to talk about a film that for me was another big childhood one. Pocahontas, I might have said on the podcast before, when we talk very often about the VHSs that we had as kids, the films that we grew up on, Sam and I, for me... This was the last one that we got on VHS. So we had the whole run really from Little Mermaid through to Pocahontas. I think Rescue was down under a side. We had the rest of them on VHS. This was where our VHS collection stopped. We kind of hopped mostly across to Pixar from here. So Pocahontas was one that I watched a lot as a kid. I had a lot of affection for. I hadn't seen it in decades And it was really interesting watching it with fresh eyes, especially for this film, telling this story in this context, seeing it 30 years on from its creation brought up all kinds of interesting things. So I cannot wait to get into it. And it's nice. I've had an amazing time having our lovely guests on. We had so much fun with Amon and with Paul Shear and with all the incredible guests that we've had recently. But Sam, this is the first time in a while that apart from an exciting guest we have coming up a little bit later in the show, Show. This is the first time it's just you and me.
1: It's good. It's nice and cosy. Just a real a real Miko and Flit situation.
0: Yeah, a Flituation.
1: Oh, <laughs> oh. yeah. Two characters who I assume... Uh, just good mates and hang out together all the time. Even though we don't see loads of that, we'll get to it. We'll have to infer a lot about what the deal with those animals is. But yeah, well, one of us is a raccoon and one of us is a hummingbird.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely the raccoon. I mean, it was in the intro, Sam. I'm the raccoon, obviously. Yeah,
1: all right. You made me Percy though in the intro. If we're going off that, so I'm I'm kind of your your nemesis or your your begrudging pal by the end.
0: Yeah. I mean, I just had to make you sound fancy, and Flit, as much as I love him, is not fancy. He's not a fancy guy. <laughs> that was why you're Percy in the intro. But I think we have a pretty solid Flit and Miko dynamic here. All right, okay, I'm I'm happy with that. Yeah. Anyway, that is enough from us. We're all sat down. The register's complete, and it's time for class to begin. So this time, we're continuing our journey through the Disney Renaissance as the studio makes a very different attempt to mythologize American history in 1995's Pocahontas. Now then Sam, maybe for the first time in a while we might have to set up the story of this one a bit more properly. We've spent weeks going, oh everybody's seen this one, everybody knows this one. But apart from the fact that it was a big staple in my childhood, Pocahontas feels like it doesn't necessarily have the same stature, the same legacy as some of the films we've talked about, like Beauty and the Beast, The Lion King, etc, where everybody knows the story. So, for the listeners out there who may or may not have seen this film, what is the plot of Pocahontas? What is the story here?
1: It's about Pocahontas, the daughter of the chief of the Poeton tribe who encounters a group of British settlers led by the heroic John Smith and the nasty Governor Ratcliffe when they land in Virginia hoping to pillage it for gold. When Pocahontas and Smith fall in love, it falls to them to overcome prejudice and bring peace to their two
0: warring peoples. Okay, so we're getting into the early part of the history of, as we now know it, the USA, the United States, of colonialism, of British settlement in America. There's a lot to get into there, but before we do, we've got to talk about something that has been brewing for a long time now, Sam. We have had a lot of years, not in this podcast, but in the context of the studio, of a certain guy who loves Diet Coke, who loves making wild decisions, who loves pop culture references, who loves to make occasionally terrible, occasionally completely brilliant decisions. I am, of course talking about Katzenberg himself, Jeffrey Katzenberg, as I should say. And as you've been alluding to for a long time, Katzen Brexit. I kind of like it for what we're going to be discussing, but the exit of Jeffrey Katzenberg from Disney, there is contention there. I don't know the full extent of this story. I've been waiting to hear what happened, why Jeffrey Katzenberg decided to leave the studio or the circumstances in which he left. So please, please put me out of my misery. What is the story of Cats and Brexit slash Catsit. I think Catsit sounds like a biscuit to me, like, like a Kit Catsit. It's almost like a
1: cross between a Kit Kat and a Twix. That's what that conjures in my mind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Cats and Brexit. I think that, that's my favourite. So as we mentioned on the last episode, this story sadly begins with the death of Frank Wells, who was the president of Disney, in a helicopter crash a few months before The Lion King was released, and that film is dedicated to Frank Wells. And Wells is said to have been a mediator at the studio between the competing egos of Jeffrey Katzenberg, who was the head of Disney Studios, Michael Eisner, who was the CEO of the Disney Company, and Roy Disney, who was Walt's nephew and kind of the face of the company and an influential figure on the board. So Wells' death left the studio's leadership in turmoil and they needed to fill that gap. And Katzenberg believed himself to be next in line for that job he'd been positioning himself more and more as the figurehead of Disney Animation placing himself at the forefront of the Lion King's promotional campaign which really incensed Eisner and Roy there was a real sense of competition here of who is going to be the next Walt Disney and everyone thought it was going to be them there was this period of huge success in in every arm of the studio but especially animation and it really felt like it was Katzenberg's time to take that crown And apparently, before Frank's death, Eisner had assured Katzenberg that he would be next in line for the job if Frank were to quit. And this is all sounding quite reminiscent of The Lion King itself. A few of the filmmakers have made that comparison, like something about the atmosphere and this war of succession at the studio bled into the story of the the film. So when Wells died, instead of promoting Katzenberg... Eisner took on Wells' duties himself. That's how unfit he thought Katzenberg was for the job. I, Eisner wouldn't do it for very long, but that was his response to, like, Katzenberg wanting this job. It's like, no, 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 no. I'm going to do it. So Katzenberg resigned from the company later that year, and there's conflicting reports over whether he jumped or whether he was pushed. Uh, what I do know, this is true, some of the animators threw him a going-away party with big kegs of Diet Coke.
0: <laughs> no! That's
1: amazing. <laughs> yeah. So he was a controversial figure in the animation studio, but there seems to have been some degree of respect for him even up until the
0: end. It's kind of undeniable that while he's been at the studio, things have gone up and up through that period.
1: Yeah, there's certainly a correlation. and There's been lots of other things changed or occurred during that period. For example, Ashman and Mencken coming on board had a lot to do with it. The particular generation of animators were extremely talented at this point in time they were building off the kind of run of competition that they'd had from don bluth in the 1980s so a lot of things came together but yeah katzenberg was nominally in charge of the studio so it feels like he certainly felt that he had some claim to the success that they'd achieved and of course this led to him bouncing back with a new venture which was going to completely shake up the world of entertainment and especially shake up the Disney Studio once again a collaboration with Steven Spielberg I'm of course talking about the submarine-themed submarine sandwich (laughs) restaurant Dive
0: I love how much you're obsessed with Jeffrey Katzenberg's (laughs) submarine-themed sub-sandwich restaurant incredible
1: which simulated every hour the submarine diving in <laughs> submerging beneath the ocean. And it didn't, it somehow wasn't a hit. They somehow <laughs> only made two of them. It didn't change the world of submarine sandwiches as they intended it to. But in addition to dive, Katzenberg and Spielberg collaborated along with Katzenberg's close friend, music mogul David Geffen, on DreamWorks SKG, including DreamWorks Animation. Wait, which wait, 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 wait. us
0: Shrek, and yeah? <laughs> wait. I have just realised, after decades of seeing that logo, that DreamWorks SKG is Spielberg Katzenberg Geffen. Yeah. That that makes a lot of sense. That shouldn't blow my mind as much as it does, but it just, I don't know, just something's locked into place of why those three initials pop up at the beginning of Shrek. Oh my god.
1: <laughs> yeah, the SKG stands for Shrek. Oh god, I can't finish <laughs> that joke. <laughs> Kung Fu Panda, obviously. Kung Fu Panda. <laughs> And Giant Ooh. Woman from Monsters vs. Aliens. <laughs> Gee, that's like that character's name. I think, what is it? I think it's like Giganta or something. That, that might be it. It's Shrek, Kung Fu Panda, Giganta. Okay, that bit has run its course. It's Spielberg, Katzenberg, Geffen. And yeah, this would be, in particular, the biggest new animation studio on the block. The first real serious competitors to Disney since really Don Bluth. And you know, the shake of the animation game once again. So Katzenberg will
0: continue to be a presence that is felt all the way through the rest of this podcast almost. Ooh, so, this is Katzenberg leaving the studio, but we have a Jeffrey Katzenberg will return dot 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 moment right here. Yeah, absolutely. So, just to be clear, where is he around Pocahontas? How far before Pocahontas comes out is Katzenberg leaving the studio? He left just
1: after The Lion King was finished, uh, right. or not long after The Lion King was finished. So he was there for most of the production of Pocahontas, and he had a lot to do with the production of Pocahontas, which we'll come to, but he left before it was released.
0: With Cats and Brexit, Cats It covered, let's go back to the beginning in terms of, as we've been saying, Disney and the walt disney animation studios have been mythologizing american history throughout the several decades of films that we've been discussing especially you look at things like the package movies and all the wild west stories in there johnny appleseed picos bill you've got things like lady and the tramp and dumbo which are getting into early 20th century america it's been a lot of mythologizing eras and times of america from walt's childhood and much further back as well But with Pocahontas, this is approaching the early days of kind of British colonial forces settling in America and from a very different perspective. So how long had Disney been looking at telling the story or at least a story of Pocahontas?
1: This story wasn't one that Walt had been wanting to tell the whole time, like we get with other stories like Beauty and the Beast, for example. But Walt was very interested in this period of history, in addition to what you mentioned, just in the in the run of animated films we've covered, you obviously had Frontierland, Main Street USA, later the Liberty Square areas and the Disney theme parks. There's a, a huge number, even though this is Disney's first animated movie based on a true story, more than 20 of the live-action films that came out during Walt's lifetime were set in America's past many of which were based on true stories and many of which feature indigenous people so most famously there's the davy crockett series of films and tv specials which does deal with indigenous people and has kind of an ambivalent view towards them and their relationship with the united states But there were even a few movies that were centered on indigenous characters and cultures to varying degrees of sensitivity, films like Tonka and The Light in the Forest. And another important piece of context in that regard for this film's production is that this is being made at exactly the same time that Disney were designing and lobbying to build a new theme park in Virginia, where Pocahontas is set, called Disney's America.
0: Oh, wow. Which, I mean, that never happened. That doesn't exist.
1: It did not happen. It was a big Michael Eisner passion project. It was really fixated on this idea, and it would have had lands themed around the Civil War and the Revolution, and a land vaguely called Native America. By the time Pocahontas was released, the park had been cancelled due to protests from historians concerned with Disney presenting a sanitised view of history, and the fact that the proposed site was near a number of actual historical landmarks that risked being damaged or distracted from. So that never got built but it's hard to imagine that the potential synergy would have gone unnoticed when they were making these movies. Also that the criticisms levelled towards the theme part wouldn't have had an impact on the story that they were trying to tell in, in this movie. Although based on the film we eventually get it's not as accurate as that might lead one to believe. That's Kind of just a potted history of Disney's dealing with this period of history and with these peoples. And I think that Disney's America thing will have been on their mind. It will have been on the public's mind when this was being made. But the concept for the movie was suggested by Mike Gabriel, one of the directors, and he came up with it over Thanksgiving dinner after finding a book about Pocahontas in a relative's bootcase. This is the story anyway. And he pitched it to the bosses by taking a painting of Tiger Lily from Peter Pan a much less sympathetic, much more overtly racist depiction of indigenous characters, and just wrote Walt Disney's Pocahontas on it, which to me suggests a view that these things, these characters, these depictions are kind of interchangeable, but obviously the film developed a lot from that point. And it's been called the quickest idea-to-production turnaround in Disney history. Katzenberg really took to it, for reasons that we'll get into. And it helped that they'd been trying to crack a kind of Romeo and Juliet story for a while, including a version of West Side Story with cats.
0: Oh, (laughs) I feel like that's come up at some point
1: in the podcast before. I don't know. We talked about they were going to do Catcher in the Rye with dogs. (laughs) (laughs) They obviously did Oliver with dogs and cats. They're going to do West Side Story with cats. This is the level that they're at. It's not hard to see that, oh, Pocahontas, yeah, okay, yeah, that sounds like a great idea, next to West Side Story with cats.
0: Incredible. So this came about really quickly then from the initial idea, and as we said in the Lion King episode... The Lion King at the time was like the B movie. All the A team, effectively, at the Disney studio were working on Pocahontas. This was their big bet. They thought this was going to be the big movie, a sort of very prestigey movie in a way, telling a big, sweeping, romantic story with an indigenous American lead character, getting into naughtier parts of American history and as we might get into presenting some very flawed, but with a level of research and detail in there as well, depiction of Indigenous American cultures. So we have the A-team working on this movie, and yet the directors attached to this, Mike Gabriel and Eric Goldberg, aren't ringing too many bells to me. So who are these guys? Who are the people working on this film?
1: Okay, well, you've got Mike Gabriel, who co-directed *Rescuers Down Under. So he's been okay. he's been around more famous more significant i would argue is eric goldberg who is one of the kind of all-time great disney animators i think this is his only credit as the director of a feature film but he animated the character of the genie in aladdin oh, so he's a, a, a big part of of the success of that film he's kind of returned to prominence a bit in the last few months he seems to be the main guy in charge of the existing walt disney studios 2d animation unit which basically just produces so they made a new animated short about mickey mouse which has been released as part of a documentary about mickey mouse on disney plus
0: sam it is all coming back to me i just watched that documentary a couple of weeks ago and he's the friendly big guy who loves to draw mickey mouse and is still making hand-drawn mickey mouse cartoons right eric goldberg yeah. it's all coming together when i just saw this as a name attached to the film i was like who is that kind like i don't think i know this guy yeah that's the guy yeah the documentary by the way is called uh, mickey the story of a mouse and it's part of the hundred years of disney celebration stuff it's on disney plus now you can go and watch that
1: yeah so goldberg's featured quite heavily in that he also made the recent oswald the lucky Rabbit. 2D cartoon as well, which is a return to one of Walt's very first animated creations. And these two guys, I think they were a bit mismatched. I sent you a picture on WhatsApp of these two guys the other day because when you put them next to each other, it's like a long lost collaboration between Billy Joel and Jimmy Buffett. It's like you've got (laughs) Mike Gabriel's this like really slick kind of grease almost looking guy. And then Eric Goldberg, who is like big guy, Hawaiian shirt long white hair, long white beards Like, they could not be more visually
0: mismatched. Which one is the Flit and which one is the Miko? I'm feeling like Eric Goldberg is the Miko, Mike yeah. Gabriel is the closer to Flit of the two of them.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, of course, the other big creative partner on this film was Jeffrey Katzenberg. His input was mainly in the direction of this movie has to win the oscar for best picture because beauty and the beast nearly won the oscar for best picture and katzenberg never forgot it and he was determined to make a movie that could finally take that prize. so everything about this movie at least on his part has been precision designed to win that award so the story like we say it's a big american epic it's the kind of story that wins oscars it's an epic romance you know it's it's a titanic it's a uh, gone with the wind even you know it's a casablanca it's one of those movies this was the impetus for example behind age and the character of pocahontas up she was a child in real life when these events took place and in this she's very much an adult woman so it can have those romantic dynamics this was the impetus behind keeping the animals mute rather than having them speak and avoiding like broad cartoony gags. And Eric Goldberg is a big fan of broad cartoony gags. And he was so restricted by this that he started secretly moonlighting as an animator for Chuck Jones, the legendary Looney Tunes director. So he did the animated sequence at the start of Mrs. Doubtfire, under assuming them when he was supposed to be working on Pocahontas, on directing Pocahontas.
0: I love that he's just like, my wackiness has to go somewhere. Like, I can't just stop being wacky for a bit. I'm going to have to funnel that into another project so that I can just like channel that into something else rather than having to stop the wackiness altogether. I love it. So in addition
1: to wanting to make this a Best Picture winner, another reason behind the particular, and I would say like fairly unique for Disney, high tone of the film is linked to the negative response from middle eastern critics to aladdin saying that that film was an unfair portrayal of those cultures which engaged in negative stereotypes and which crucially didn't cast middle eastern actors as those characters so a lot about pocahontas is a response to that backlash and you see a bit more effort being taken to research the history and the culture of the and although the result is far from perfect they did cast all indigenous actors as the indigenous characters including uh, Irene Bedard as Pocahontas and Russell Means as the chief who was a prominent activist and a member of the American Indian movement and a lot of the press at the time stresses these efforts that Disney went to to learn about the history culture and appearance of the Powhatans visiting museums and reservations talking to historians and experts and going on research trips to reservations they, they brought on a woman called shirley little dove custolo mcgowan as a consultant and she served as Keane's visual inspiration for pocahontas however she disowned the finished film after realizing they weren't as committed to accuracy as she had been led to believe she said i wish my name wasn't on it and i wish pocahontas's name wasn't on it which brings us into like the thorny issue that we're going to be dealing with throughout this project this is a film which in many ways is clearly well-intentioned but in many other ways fumbles the ball a bit when it comes to representation of indigenous cultures whether we're talking about historical accuracy or about the politics of the messages that they're trying to convey,
0: now. In this podcast Sam and I, beyond all the ridiculous bits that we tend to zone in on on these films, we hope to bring the level of expertise to these films and the context that they come from, but with Pocahontas there is a real specificity to that story and the truth that lies behind that story, which I mean we aren't really knowledgeable or qualified to discuss to the level that it deserves but I'm really pleased to welcome on a guest who absolutely can. We're very, very lucky to be joined for this section of the show by a historian, an academic from Rutgers University in New Jersey. She is an expert in the history of Native America and Latin America and the author of the book Pocahontas and the Powhatan Dilemma. Welcome to Disneyversity, Camilla Townsend. Thank you for joining us.
2: Oh, thank you so much for having me.
0: We're really honoured to have you uh, joining us, especially for this episode. Uh, Yeah, welcome to the show. I I have to ask, before we get into the serious stuff, do you have a favourite Disney movie?
2: I do indeed. It is Bambi.
0: Oh, great choice. We love Bambi on this show.
2: I love that they can take 20 or 30 minutes to cover a 20 or 30 minute period in this little deer's life. I loved the slowness of it. I loved the detail. And I loved it as a child for those reasons, I believe.
1: Yeah, it's of a piece with Pocahontas in a lot of ways. I think Pocahontas is a film which draws on different aspects of Disney's history in different ways. But it is a spiritual sequel to Bambi in the sense that it's part of this broader mini canon of disney movies set in the north american wilderness there's almost a trilogy that starts with bambi and then you get pocahontas and then maybe ends with brother bear which we'll get to a long way down the road but it's a it's an environment and a setting that walt disney in particular was really fascinated with so it, i think it's interesting that you've picked up bambi when we're here to talk about pocahontas
2: i'm sure you're right i hadn't made the connection but i have no doubt that some of those elements that drew me later drew me to what i study.
0: yeah So I guess to lead us into that then, can you tell us first a little bit about your own history and how it led you to become an expert in this field? How did you start studying this history? Where did that come from for you?
2: Well, I actually at one point studied comparative economic history, and I was in the midst of writing a book about that, how the two groups, the English and the Spaniards, interacted differently with different indigenous peoples and how that created different economic patterns. while I was in the midst of that study, I realized that in some cases, Native Americans actually wrote a great deal. The Nahua's in Mexico, we call them the Aztecs, wrote a great deal. So I dived down that channel so so that I could read what they had to say. Um, And while I was doing that, I realized I wanted to uh, keep the comparative element alive. And although we don't have the same sorts of sources in North America, uh, we cannot, for instance, produce a diary or letters written by Pocahontas, I did become aware that because she was so famous, many English people wrote about her and many other Native Americans also mentioned her. And so I began to think that this was a figure that I should focus some attention on, even though she didn't write herself, because through her, I might be able to reconstruct Something about what the indigenous people's perspective on the situation in Jamestown and near Jamestown would have been. And I think that turned out to be correct. I can't do it as clearly or as well as I can, say, for the Aztecs who wrote so much about their own lives and their own perspectives. But thanks to her fame uh, and therefore the production of records and the preservation of those records, we can walk down the path of learning something about something significant about the way the Powhatan Indians thought about their lives.
0: It's interesting to hear you say that there are kind of you get both sides of that in the history in the writings that it's not just because I think a lot of what happens in I guess how we see this story today and the Disney version of this story is that it is a story being told from a history that has gone down from a relatively singular perspective but it's really interesting to hear you say that there is there is history there is writings from indigenous people on their side of that story as well
2: yes although i must hasten to say uh that the indigenous people who wrote about first contact actually did so later and by later i mean maybe one or two generations later i don't mean centuries later although that too um, but what we don't have are sources written by indigenous people right in the, you know, the eye of the storm between 1607, say, and 1627, that we do not have. But again, because she was so famous, we have very detailed comments made by the English that have everything to do with her perspective. So for instance, while she was a prisoner for a year among the English, they tried to convert her. And we know that she rejected them and rebuffed them, not because we have her writings, but because we have a sort of a love letter written to the English governor by John Rolfe, one of the English settlers, in which he asked permission to marry her. And he says very explicitly in this letter that exists, it's in the Oxford library, the Bodleian Library. He said, I'm summarizing, not quoting, I know that she is still an unrepentant pagan and that she has not become a Christian but I promise you O oh governor if you allow me to marry her I will make sure that the children are raised Christian okay? and maybe someday I'll even be able to convert her so we know through this line of text that she as a prisoner for the preceding year had repeatedly said no no No, I'm not giving up my gods to follow yours. So it's not as good as finding a passionate statement written by Pocahontas herself. But when you put together all the shreds of evidence like that, that come from reading between the lines or even reading the lines of the English sources, we can figure out something about what she thought or what her father thought.
1: Yeah, I think that's really interesting how, um, so you're basically talking about how her contemporaneous fame and, and notoriety at the time makes her a useful case study as an academic. And one of my questions for you was, why does contemporary America and has contemporary America fixated on Pocahontas as like a national myth to the extent that they have? And do you think her fame at the time has had a big influence on that as well?
2: Actually, no, it wasn't her fame at the time because although she was very well known then, uh, afterwards in later generations, People largely forgot about her. Um, it was during the early 19th century, actually, that Americans became fixated on her. It was in the wake of our Revolutionary War when we were looking for myths and stories to justify our existence. You know, some, in various ways, we were always our writers were always trying to prove that it made sense that we had broken away from Europe and that you know, we had always been destined to be something separate. And so they came up with stories like th- that of Pocahontas. Now. The Disney film changes this narrative, but the narrative they came up with then in the early 1800s and that lasted right up to my childhood, really right up to the Disney movie, was that this was a good Indian. This was one of the ones who understood that white people are better. She, Pocahontas, was supposed to have adored English culture, had been dying to become a Christian. Indeed, she did become a Christian. She fell wildly in love with English people. When she went to London, she wanted to stay. This was all pure fantasy, but it was a very convenient narrative. The idea was, of course, we, the the Americans, the settler population of Americans should have inherited this continent. Even the rational and good Indians among them understood that we should inherit this continent and admired us and wanted us to take the lead. Uh, It was stories like hers that were very, satisfying, if you will, to the um, American settler population at the time. And again, that story lasted, it went into a major textbook, also written by Noah Webster, um, like Webster's dictionary, he wrote a textbook that just about every American school child in their log cabin school read. And this story became part of the American Ethos really. My mother, who was born in the 30s, learned the story, taught me the story, and, and she and her whole generation loved to say how much they loved Pocahontas. It proved they weren't racist, that they loved this wonderful young Christian girl who fell in love with a white man. So, really, that was the story as, as it was out there until the Disney movie came along. And, and I think it's because of the nature of that story that it lasted. It sort of pandered to the American ego, if you will.
1: So do you think, even though Disney did change that story a lot, and I think we'll probably come on to what some of those changes were as we go on, do you think that in a similar way the version of the Pocahontas myth that they adapt for the 1990s is saying something that is useful to the white America of the 1990s in the same way that these versions of the stories you're describing were useful to the white American psyche of a different era?
2: I do, and again, I hope we will talk about the many ways in which the film broke the narrative in in very positive ways that were very helpful to Native kids and to non-Native kids, but at the same time, it did retain a certain amount of what dominant culture Americans wanted to hear. Not so much in denigrating her culture or in saying that she adored white men in white culture. They very specifically had her reject that, as you know, but the filmmakers did promote very strongly the idea that we all could have gotten along if only people on both sides had been a little more patient and a little kinder to each other, there was a deep denial in the film that what the American settlers were there to do, by definition, was to dispossess the Native Americans, and that it wasn't a question of a misunderstanding, and if only Pocahontas and her people had spoken a little more clearly, and if only a few more people had had their ears wide open on the, on the settler side, all would have been well. That sounds very nice, and it makes people feel better about the situation oh it was a tragic accident you know what happened but it wasn't an accident the European settlers, not just in Virginia, but everywhere, not just the English, I'm far from blaming just the English, were there to settle and eventually to take the land of the Native Americans. And the movie just conveniently avoids all of that. It avoids the pain of the terrible epidemics that the colonizers brought. It it avoids the pain of the unequal power. You know, There was much greater potential and realization of violence on the part of the Europeans than was ever possible to, to come from the Native Americans. So by ignoring or setting aside certain painful realities, I think it did make the past a little more bearable, seemed a little more accidental, and therefore a little more excusable, I would argue, than it really was.
0: So I mean, I'd love to ask about what some of those misconceptions are in in the way that this story, as you say, has for generations been told in an entirely inaccurate and skewed way. So what are some of the misconceptions that have gone down in history around this story? I mean for one, Pocahontas was not her name.
2: Right. Well, Pocahontas was a nickname. It means little little mischief, but her name was Matoka and she probably had other names that we don't know. Her childhood secret name was Matoka and she did tell them that after she did decide at her father's request Uh, to accept the uh, the white man as her husband and to add his God to her pantheon. She then said, and you should stop calling me Pocahontas, my name is Matoka. She told them that only when she was about to be baptized, Rebecca, And they were outraged. How come she had not told them her real name before? But of course, there were many things she had not told them. They had a silly sense of what an open book she was. If they had thought about it at all, they would have realized, obviously, she, she had been a prisoner among them for a year. Obviously, she wasn't bearing her soul to them. One of the most basic misunderstandings is that she was taken violently from her people and held prisoner with the explicit intent of trying to force her to be an intermediary. She was to try to convince her people to pay an annual tax or tribute in corn and other goods. No, when they took her prisoner, they didn't know that one of the white men would fall in love with her and that there would be a marriage. I suppose another major misconception is that she did everything she did for the white people. In fact, the records that we have by English people are, provide absolute proof that she did what she did for her own people. Uh, She agreed to marry the white man after they sent messengers to her father, who said, yes, marry him. And I should add, that was very typical. Native American princesses, shall we say, that is, daughters of noblemen chiefs were often asked to marry with the enemy. So this would not have been a shock to her. She continued to reject many of the teachings of her husband uh, after the marriage, and we know this because he complained. He said, I think this is a quote, "'Yay, the Indians do run headlong, nay, with joy into damnation.'" Meaning she, the Indian he was living with, whom he knew and whom he was very clearly talking about, was rejecting his advice about how to be a good person and how to behave properly. I suppose another myth would be that she loved England so much that she wanted to stay. In fact, she was stricken Uh, by disease while she was there, and died when she was trying to come home. She had said, let's leave early, let's get back. But before they even got to Gravesend, when they were descending the Thames, she had to be put ashore, and she died there in the inn at Gravesend. So there are many myths attached to her real life. I think almost all of which are kind of helpful to the American audience in changing the the past so that they can feel better about themselves, so that we can feel better about ourselves. I shouldn't distance myself from those Americans, should I?
1: (laughs) (laughs) One, I guess, misconception that has really fascinated me while doing a bit of research from this, and one which is absolutely central to what Disney are trying to do in the film, is this idea that john smith and pocahontas were a romantic couple which from what i've been able to gleam is, is fairly evidently not true and that seems to be a relatively recent incorporation into the myth this is the way that my mind works i can trace it at least as far back as peggy lee's 1958 version of the song fever where there's right. a verse about john right. smith and pocahontas i'm assuming it goes quite a bit further back than that so it where does did that does. idea come from
2: I know the song. Actually, the idea that she was in love with the white man, in particular, John Smith, does go way back to the early 1800s. The very first story that was written in that vein actually was by an Englishman, uh, John Davis. He was traveling in the United States uh, in the, like 18 aughts, 1801, 1803. He produced travel literature, which he originally intended to sell back in England, but some of it did very well in the young United States. And a sort of throwaway story that he had heard and he'd mentioned in one of his books became a subject of interest, the story of Pocahontas. So then he wrote a whole book about her, and then he wrote another whole book about her. And he really developed the story, and then Americans took it over and, as I said, put it in their textbooks and all sorts of things. But um, there is absolutely no evidence for it at all. Uh, The only thing I would say, well, two things. One, John Smith later apologized when he was being investigated for wrongdoing He alluded to the fact that other Englishmen had said that he was trying to make time with this little girl, that she was only a little girl, about nine years old when he was there. He was a prisoner of her people and, and she and uh, seems to have been the one who taught him some poet and words and he taught her some English words. We have his notes on those lessons. He was accused by his fellow Englishmen of having come on to this little girl, right? On grounds that if he married her, he would then become sort of a prince in the Americas because he would be married to a princess. He said to rebut this accusation, two things like, number one, that's ridiculous because that's not how power passes amongst the Indian people of the Americas. It would have been Powhatan's nephew, not his daughter's husband who inherited. And he was quite right about that actually. The guy was no idiot. But then he did say, maybe I did say and do some things that I shouldn't have when I was in my cups, meaning when I was drunk. So one suspects that he did, as we would now put it, assault her sexually or grope her in front of people. As horrific as that sounds, during the course of their acquaintance, she is likely to have passed puberty. And sadly, in that era, many men thought it was just fine to approach a little girl if she was at least somewhere near puberty. So that's probably the origin of the story in her own day. But nobody made much of it at the time because a few years later, she married another Englishman, John Rolfe. The only thing we know about her relationship with John Smith was that when she came to London, she very publicly berated him in front of other people. That's how we know. Having lied to her, she said, you and the Englishmen do lie much. In other words, you promised us certain things that you did not keep. And in fact, as you, John Smith, know, your people have tried to take my father's land. So she was not too fond of him, according to the you know the, the statements that we have of the, of the other English people who witnessed this scene. As I said, in the early 1800s, this John Davis alluded to a story of her having supposedly been in love with John Smith. I think it's possible that rather than hearing that story, he had actually read John Smith's narrative, because that would have been a good place for him to sort of discover this possible connection and he wrote about it and as i said that's been the story ever since poor john rolfe largely disappears except for from serious biographies
1: yeah and from pocahontas to journey of the new world which we will get to he he pops up in that and now we have another john we've got john smith john rolfe john davis john ratcliffe who's the villain in the movie far too many johns obviously we as the english can take blame (laughs) for that that's our fault
2: (laughs) My husband is named John, too. (laughs) He's Irish, though.
0: (laughs) So is there anything else in the intervening years? I want to come to the Disney version in just a minute. But are there other things then that we've come to learn in more recent years or recent discoveries of this written history about the reality of Matoaka's life and the the story of her people?
2: It is true that some evidence has surfaced recently that demonstrates that she did have a forceful personality. Some letters have come to light to and from the Virginia Company in which it is discussed that she and John Rolfe are going to take some money to Virginia to be, they're in London, they're going to go back to Virginia again, they're going to take some of these charitable gifts back to Virginia to be used to try to convert more Indians to Christianity. And she apparently said to them, according to these reports, "Okay, we'll take the money, but you have to understand that it's sort of a thank you gift for what we've already done and not a promise to convert any more Indians because I don't think they want to be converted. Uh, So again, this is not a statement made by her but reported by an Englishman. But it's against everything they wanted her to say. So I suspect it's true. Why would an Englishman make that up? So there are bits of evidence like that that have come up. The only big picture story i would say that has come out in the last generation or so since roughly the time of the making of the film is a kind of new reckoning or engagement with the uprising or the rebellion or the war what shall we call it of 1622 that the Powhatan indians brought against the colonists pocahontas died but after john rolfe and some of the other visitors to england came back including some Indians whom they had brought with them, friends and relatives of Pocahontas, kind of a fact-finding mission for her father, Poetin, They came back carrying the word that England had a great population and many ships and much armor and cannons, more than they had seen before, and that this was going to be a problem. And two years later, there was a great uprising. That's not exactly the right word because an uprising occurs when you have already been under the authority of another power and the Indians had not accepted English authority, but the great war was made by the Indians against the English up and down the James River and they killed about a quarter of the people. Estimates range from between a fifth and a third And some of the Indians hoped that this would be enough to convince the English to just go home, to stop struggling. Of course, it did no such thing. A man named Edward Waterhouse wrote a report saying, finally, we are free to just kill them because it has now become clear that we can't live with them as as neighbors. Um, So there's been much analysis of the sources surviving about this. And... Many of the indigenous people seem to have hoped it would be enough to send them away. Others seem to have hoped that it would be enough to contain the English, to get them to stop moving outward with their settlements and plantations away from the river and get them to stick to the river where they might maintain uh, trade posts. Uh, So efforts are being made to think about what the English reveal about these events in order to understand better indigenous military plans and hopes. But what we don't have are actual, you know, full length written statements from the Native Americans. Yeah. All of that happened after Pocahontas died. So the the Disney movies are not to be faulted for not referencing that at all.
0: So on the Disney movie then, uh, it's interesting, something you said kind of towards the beginning of the conversation, which is that actually the Disney movie helped to evolve, uh, especially Western understanding of the Pocahontas story sam and i have not recorded the rest of this episode yet we have not properly talked about this film but there's a lot that happens in the film that there are things that feel very well intentioned there are things that feel well researched perhaps but there is also maybe complications in the way that it takes this context and this true history and applies a kind of straightforward Romeo and Juliet style romance plot. I think that's maybe, uh, I'll be intrigued when Sam and I get into discussing the film, where a lot of those complications come in. So it's interesting to hear you say that actually before the film, if that's our understanding of it now, that actually at the time it came out it was significantly evolving a lot of people's understanding of what that Pocahontas narrative actually is. So so what can you tell us about the version in the Disney film and, and how that kind of changed that narrative?
2: Well, the makers of the film utterly rejected the idea that she was wildly in love with white men, white culture, white religion, you know, English cities, English ways. Uh, they have her very proudly and defiantly demonstrate her love for and defend her own culture and her own people. And at the end, eventually, she even refuses to go to London. Although, as you've alluded to, there's another movie where that changes. But this is very different from the story of Pocahontas as it had existed before. And I think it did a lot of good. I mean, my students now, undergraduates who were born, say, in the late 90s or the early 2000s, That's their understanding of who Pocahontas is. You know, a a young Native American woman who was proud of her people and refused to allow herself to be pushed over by them. The filmmakers also acknowledge some of the pain caused by the settlers. They acknowledge the the greed. They acknowledge that the English who arrived uh, were still filled with stories of Spanish successes further south and that they had the idea that they would dig 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 and they would find gold etc so they were more honest about the difficulties on the horizon i guess for native americans and the problems brought to them by the explorers and the settlers they also did some research in Algonquian culture now her people are the poeten but almost all of the Native Americans along the coast, the east coast of America, spoke languages that were all in one language family, the Algonquian language family. And because their environmental surroundings were also very similar, their language was similar, we find that their cultures were also quite similar not identical uh, not you know replaceable or interchangeable but there was a certain cultural grammar that fit up and down the coast and the filmmakers had clearly done some real research there some of the objects that appear in the film some of this Religious beliefs that are alluded to, the housing, all sorts of elements are very well done. And that too was new. It, there weren't a lot of children's movies out there that did serious research and made an effort to honestly portray Native cultures. So all that was wonderful. And indeed, many Native American people, my generation, saw their children grow up on that film. And the kids loved it. They loved that there was a big exciting Disney movie that was all about someone that they could identify with their ancestors Um, so it was a big hit in that regard too there are problems and I think we're going to move on to talk about some of them Um, but all of those were great steps forward
0: yeah I mean from your position of expertise in this field and in this history what are the areas where this film falls short for you?
2: As I mentioned before, the biggest one is that it really minimizes the horrendous situation in which her people and all Native American people were now going to find themselves, did find themselves in the fate that awaited them. The population die off and the wearing down and erosion of their cultural ways of being and thinking all were threatened. And that really isn't even alluded to, I would argue. But more specifically, she does reject her indigenous husband, or soon to be husband, and she really was married to an indigenous man named Kokoom. And in the film, they have her suitor be Kokoom. And she is uninterested in him, but then is indeed smitten by this interesting foreign guy. And they, of course, make John Smith be tall and handsome and blonde and interesting and admirable, far more interesting bluntly than her indigenous suitor. And that, comes a little bit too close to the old myth of Indian girls, they love white men, that whole racist trope, um, for many people's comfort. And then they minimize the difficulties. Of course, they had to do this. But you know, one magic breeze and one song and, they're, and she's speaking perfect English. They could have, I think, indicated that it was a little more complicated than that. But I do understand that it was a film and a, and a children's film. I suppose here I am repeating something. But the idea. That that it was an accident too that you know but for a bit more communication we we might have been able to change everything that uh, we, we don't need to feel bad about this because truly it's just one of those things and you know one of those coincidences in history that too is a bit problematic but still Given where the narrative was, (laughs) given the film that needed to be made in the 1990s, I actually think they did a really wonderful job.
1: Yeah, I was interested. You mentioned, I mean, I just from like a kind of storytelling perspective as well, take issue with the whole listen with your heart sequence where they can instantly understand each other as if by magic. And that leads me to something which I was intrigued by, which is the film's presentation of, I'll call it kind of broadly, spirituality we would now call a lot of what we see in this film magic. And there's obviously that whole sequence, there's the grandmother willow talking tree figure, and then there's a a sequence with a kind of, uh, I don't know if shaman is the right words, but that's kind of what it reads as to me, who is able to conjure illusions in order to convey the danger that's about to befall them. All of this seems like Disney are trying to align the indigenous characters with a kind of spirituality and and mysticism, which in some cases feels to me as an ignorant person, like it might be drawing from actual spiritual beliefs that those people would have had in another ways feels like it's quite vague and is just describing them a kind of general mysticism in order to other them from the white settlers. So in what ways do these, spiritual and mystical aspects line up with actual beliefs that these people would have had, and in which ways are they just inventions?
2: You're right to have that question. And in fact, I am of two minds myself about whether they did right there. On one hand, as you say, they did do some research. And what the filmmakers presented as Algonquian religion was not terribly far from the truth, as we now understand it. But there is no question that at the same time they were playing with stereotypes, probably in some cases willfully and in some cases accidentally or unintentionally, unconsciously. For example, we all here in America, we all love to say that the Indians, you know, loved and respected Mother Earth. That was an invention. There are almost no tribes who actually worshiped a figure called or even really interchangeable with Mother Earth. That wasn't a thing. It was invented in the 1800s and cast backwards by actually Native Americans and white explorers kind of working together and egging each other on. And yet, in essence, or at root, there is a truth there. That is, again, almost all Native American tribes did deeply respect the earth, did feel that the universe was divine. There is that of God everywhere, not just that of God in each of us, but that of God in many elements of the living world, animals, plants, even minerals. And sometimes there are moments of great beauty or objects of great beauty that appear and remind us to think about the divine in the universe. So That was very real, their their love for, their respect for, their sense of themselves as being a small part of a great earth and a great universe. That was all true. They just didn't have a goddess named Mother Earth, right? On one level, the filmmakers were, I think, really trying to convey, and to some extent, did convey something about Algonquian religion. On another level, they were absolutely giving the audience what we wanted, which is you know, literally tree-hugging Native Americans. That's a, a joke here, tree-huggers, but they are literally hugging Grandmother Willow. So I winced a couple of times, but I still think overall it did far more good than harm, even on that level. That is, many of these, again, children of Native peers of mine say that they just like seeing their own people's religion promoted as a positive. And today, many indigenous people in the United States have said and are saying that they have been forced to lose contact themselves with their own culture's religion in the long term. There are some tribes where the language has been kept alive and there's a real organic connection to the past. But in many cases, much has been lost because of colonialism. And they, too, are forced to kind of read about it and then think about Mother Earth and other elements like that. So even they say sometimes we're not in a position to critique here because we have been forced to lose so much. You know, By force, we have lost so much. In that regard, we can say that the filmmakers kind of made the best of a very difficult situation
0: so just to finish up we have to let you go in a second but you've teed up something that i wanted to end on which is what what do you think the legacy of this film is today as you mentioned there is maybe a a complicated legacy here in that this film does oversimplify things it is telling a perspective that as of recording this is now sort of 30 odd years removed from where we are today at the same time was a major Hollywood Disney movie that had a Native American woman at the center of it and did at least attempt to present that story with a level of accuracy and research so so what do you think the legacy of Disney's Pocahontas is today?
2: I think it was overwhelmingly positive the movie and the characters stand as now among young the young people that I know and teach as emblematic of Native people's pride in their culture. If there are problems with it, and there are, that may just be the cost of doing business, I would say, uh, in a figurative sense. That is, uh, in order to make a Hollywood movie, truths or deep insights needed to be bent or omitted but overwhelmingly my sense is that young people learn that native peoples were and are proud of their culture
0: well camilla thank you so much for joining us thank you so much for talking to us about this subject it's been fascinating for us and we appreciate your time so much thank you very much for joining us on disneyversity
2: thank you i enjoyed myself
0: great thank you so much Well, that was a fascinating discussion with Camilla Townsend, really interesting to hear her thoughts, her very informed perspective on where this movie sits, where it gets things right, where it doesn't get things right. And now, Sam, I think it's our turn to start discussing the film. So shall we break down Disney's Pocahontas? Absolutely, let's go. As I said then, this was a film that I watched tons as a kid. I really liked this film as a kid. I think partly just because we had it and I watched it a lot. But it was fascinating watching this back. And it's one of those things that as I was watching it, it was all coming back to me. All these moments, all these parts of songs, all these images. But I had forgotten in general that this film called Pocahontas, telling the story of Pocahontas or Makoata, actually begins in London. It starts from the British colonialists' perspective. We are there with the Virginia Company singing their song. We're meeting John Smith and the crew and all the pomp and circumstance of the British Empire at that time completely had forgotten that Pocahontas started that way. What what do you make of this intro, Sam? It's really interesting, isn't it? Like,
1: specifically, it starts with... A 1600s era sketch of London, which I think is really cool. Like that's our way into it. That is the equivalent here of the classic storybook, right? Of the, of the fairy tale boot that takes us into all of those earlier princess movies. Here, it's like it's saying, "This is not just a storybook. This is not a fairy tale. Even though books have been written about Pocahontas, that's not how we're going to open this film. We're going to start with." Something which more accurately reflects the historical time period and the fact that this is very loosely based on historical facts. So I think that's interesting. That's our way in. And I also am interested in like the song here, these lyrics. Cause like you said, whose perspective is this movie from? We spend a full five minutes with the Brits before we get to Pocahontas. And we also start with this very jingoistic and like militaristic song, the Virginia company, which is introducing us to the idea of these people and what they represent and what their goals are. But there is a bit of irony there. It starts, the, the the initial refrain is glory, God and gold and the Virginia company. And then it changes it to the new world is like heaven and we'll all be rich and free. Or so we have been told by the Virginia company. So it's already seeding The irony there, it's seeding the doubt.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's interesting, as you say, that it's not positioned as a fairy tale or a story. It's presented as history. Here is us heading literally into history, heading into the bit of history that will have been properly recorded through art at the time, which is like, look at the might of the British Empire. Look at this big old ship. Look at old London. That That is the stuff that's gone down in our history. And yet, let's go into that. Let's explore beyond the boundary of that history. And to the extent that Disney was trying to at the time tell a more authentic story sam when we were learning history at school we got taught about the british empire in a sense of oh yeah we like traded with a bunch of people we had all these ships and we sailed around the world and we did some stuff not getting into what the reality of that was what that meant for the cultures that we were massively impinging on and stealing land and erasing great swathes of history that Our way into the story is like, well, this is the bit that has gone down in the history books. This is the bit that people are happy to talk about. And that then it's able to use that as a jumping off point to then take you to Pocahontas's side of the story a little bit further down the line. I don't know. We are British people and we're watching this. It's situating it with our side of the story effectively before taking us to that other perspective down the line
1: right yeah it's like you see this sketch this monochrome outline this 2d monochrome outline and then you go into it and it's this three-dimensional world with this excellent caps assisted multi-plane track through london and it's like yeah this is the kind of thing that you might see in a museum but then let's flesh it out and actually take us into that world and you also start with i want to just talk about drums for a second.
0: Okay, let's talk about drums. <laughs>
1: so about drums. The movie opens with drums. That's the first thing you hear in the film. As we see this sketch, we hear the military drums of the Virginia Company. And that to me is really interesting because drums are a recurrent symbol throughout the film did you pick up on that there's all sorts of mentions of drums
0: if i wanted to sound smart i'd just agree with you and be like yeah totally noticed that yeah drums all the way through this movie i did not pick up on the drums as a central theme through the film so please enlighten me
1: yeah i think this is really cool it's a fairly overt motif that's been encoded in here in a way that it's kind of literary in a way that a lot of Disney movies aren't really, which you could ascribe to the idea that it's trying to aim for that, like, best picture gold. But you've got the military drums which open the movie, the drums of the Virginia Company, but then we're also introduced to the poetans through drums as well. The song Steady as the Beating Drum, which, like, establishes their way of life. And then there's the reprise of that song, where the chief tries to convince Pocahontas to settle down with Cocoaum, this man that she doesn't want to marry. So drums are like seeded on both sides of this cultural divide as symbols of monotony, inevitability, entrapment, and eventually of war. So in just around the river bend, you get the lyrics. She wants to ignore that sound of distant drumming for a handsome, sturdy husband. And you get the tender moment at the end of colors of the wind interrupted by the sound of war drums. And we're told that they mean trouble. And then throughout Savages there's a recurring refrain of now we sound the drums of war. So drums start off as this like very oppressive sound in reducing us to the negative broader aspects of both of these cultures. Obviously with the Poetons it's not as overtly negative in the same way that the military drums of the Virginia Company are but this is a lifestyle that Poetontas is initially dissatisfied with and the drums are used to symbolise that in the songs sung by yourself and by other characters. It seems like because this almost always comes through in song lyrics that this is maybe a Stephen Schwartz thing. We haven't really talked about Stephen Schwartz, the new lyricist that they brought on to replace Howard Ashman and collaborate with Alan Menken, but it, it seems to be in his lyrics that a lot of these drums ideas are coming through, and I don't know, I just think that's neat, that there's stuff lurking just below the surface here that seems to be there for us to pick apart. As a, We always pick apart these Disney movies – But here it's like, oh, they're putting breadcrumbs there for us to find in a more deliberate way, I think.
0: Yeah, and I like the fact, we're going to get on to the main songs in the film a bit further down in the discussion, but that for the most part, what they do is the kind of British colonialist songs are sung in a British militaristic style. They are using the sounds of military songs, and then the indigenous american songs are presented in a very different way i like just purely on a visual level the presentation of london here it has an almost sleeping beauty-ish style to it leaning into the historical art influences and you get the sense of a very stoic very static britain and all the hopes and the dreams in this song the virginia company song kind of setting up the idea, the lie in a way, that has been sold to everybody on that voyage, and then cutting to the tempestuous sea, to the raging heart of that voyage, that immediately the dream that has been sold there of pop over the pond, go and get a bunch of gold, happy days, is not going to be as simple as it sounds. I mean, the animation there as well in that sea voyage is so fluid and lavish and beautiful, Even a step up from The Little Mermaid and some of the other kind of big sea scenes that we've had in these movies, uh, including, with the introduction of John Smith, who we'll talk about shortly as well, a proper save the cat moment (laughs) in terms of he doesn't save a cat, he saves Thomas, who falls overboard, and yet immediately establishes him as like, hey, here's your strapping hero dude, which is not necessarily an ideal way to present that character. But... This journey propels us through the mists to the New World, to America, to where the Powhatan people are living. And I do think the film does an impressive job of presenting the excitement and the mystery and the mystique of this place that is very different to the Britain that begins the film. You feel that mystery and that wonder in an almost Lion King-ish way where it just, they have done an excellent job through the music, through the visuals of getting you as an audience excited to see what this place is going to be.
1: Yeah, I do think it has a lot in common with uh, the Lion King and the way that it presents nature and there's some ideas that are put across here that are very similar to the circle of life. We'll get onto that a bit more. We've already talked about that with Camilla a little bit as well. The movie's real strength, because I am mixed on this movie. I will say that now. I didn't grow up with it as a kid. This was not one that I had on VHS. I didn't see this at all until I was quite a bit older. And it's probably, it's easily the Renaissance movie, actually, that I've seen the least. I've seen it maybe three times now in total. It's not one that I go back to. And when I went back to it, I was pleasantly surprised by how much I liked aspects of it. I'm still mixed on the movie, but the visuals really do knock you out, right? Yeah. It's good. Like This is where the movie shines. It's in the depiction of the wilderness of North America. It looks amazing. The shot that took my breath away is when Pocahontas and her father step outside while they're having their conversation about her Marion Cocoam and you just see this big landscape shot of basically their camp and then the wilderness that surrounds it the forest that surrounds it and it really does look like sleeping beauty actually i know you mentioned that earlier with regards to london but it really does look like those avon earl forests from sleeping beauty which is some of my favorite pieces of art in the entire history of cinema (laughs) to be quite honest so it's it's reaching for the stars i think there's a deliberate sleeping beauty influence there the colors that they use are beautiful as well
0: well if There are words that recur all through my notes for this film, Sam, and the stuff that I was like, wow, this is amazing. Two words. Trees. Yeah. The other word, purple. Mm. The use of purple in this movie, purple skies, purple leaves, purple swooshiness, amazing. But the trees, the background trees, the foreground trees, all of the trees, absolutely stunning. Again, I know it's an easy thing for us to reach to, but they felt like there was a bit of a Mary Blair influence here as well in just the distinctive stylized visuals of this natural world. I loved everything visually that was happening. And if we're talking about incredible images and about heading to this part of the story, let's talk about Pocahontas and let's talk about the shot where we meet Pocahontas for the first time, where... The animators they just drop the mic. They're just like, boom. She's there on top of a cliff. She's standing. The leaves are swirling around her. The sky's all purple. Here you go. Here's your lead character. Here is Pocahontas herself. Just revel in this incredible, incredible shot. It's
1: great. And it's really the product of the influence of two of the greatest Disney artists. And then the work of one. It does have that Mary Blair quality to it, and it's got that Avendale quality to it. In the way that Mary Blair used colour to emphasise what is other and different about Latin America, but in a really positive way, by using non-naturalistic colours to depict these cities and these forests and everything in in those South American films that's what they're doing here they're using all of these purples and blues and oranges and pinks colors that you wouldn't actually find in that environment it'd be all greens and browns of course to give it that sense of enchantment to make it feel alien to us as it does to the british settlers and again that's that is another way in which the film positions us alongside the british settlers but it's one that has a really positive effect in depicting the natural wilderness of north america in this really magical way it feels like we're going to a fantasy land and then on top of that you've got disney's greatest animator of the period glen Keane, who i've mentioned over and over again because he is my favorite he's the top guy working at disney during this period during this time and he is the lead animator on Pocahontas, and what that man can't do with hair isn't worth knowing about. Like, Ariel's hair, great, but he almost tops it with what's going on with Pocahontas, in this shot in particular.
0: That is a very high bar to outdo the Ariel floating hair in the water, but yeah, they get very, very close here at least. Let's talk about Pocahontas as a character. How do you feel about Pocahontas? As we discussed with Camilla, I really liked the way that they portray her as being loyal to her people that even as we'll get into the not great romance plot with John Smith she is a very headstrong character she is basically she is a 90s Disney princess she's not like other girls Sam she's not like the other women in the tribe they're like, oh, she's the special one, which is exactly what they did with Ariel and with Belle, the people in their communities who are different to everybody else. But she also has a bit of something about her. She is headstrong. She is just a very well considered character in this telling, I think.
1: Yeah, of those, well, okay, of those Disney princesses that we've encountered so far in the Renaissance, and I think we include Pocahontas in that because. Disney have actively included Pocahontas as part of the Disney princess brand, even though really she is not a princess. The Pohattans did not have a monarchy. She was the daughter of the chief. That doesn't make her a princess. That was how she was presented to the British at the time as well, but it does not make her a princess. Anyway, of those Disney princess characters during the Renaissance in many ways she is probably the best character she's not the character i would most enjoy spending time with i like watching ariel and i like watching Belle a whole lot they're really brought to life in a really entertaining way but pocahontas has the best arc because she does something all of those characters yearn for something different they yearn for change they yearn for escape And at the end of the day, they all get it to one degree or another, but none of them actually do anything to change the society in which they live to actually tackle head-on the problems that are facing that society, which Pocahontas does. And she's the only active female character in the movie. And she is the one who really prevents the war. So there seems to be an alignment here between the skills that make her successful in her mission in this film and her femininity men cannot stop this war. the woman has to so qualities like what you might call feminine intuition and like a unique sense of morality and diplomacy versus male selfishness and aggression that's what wins the day here and yes it would be and it is essentialist to ascribe those qualities uniquely to particular genders but i think that's what the film is doing here and therefore it's more of like a genuinely kind of girl power movie i hesitate to say feminist because there's issues all over the place in terms of how gender is represented here but it it feels more like she is being given something to do as a character and that's tied to her femininity in a way which could be seen as empowering do
0: you know what one of my favorite things about the pocahontas dynamic is in this film right and i don't have her name and i can't find it but pocahontas has a mate She's friends with that other woman in the tribe. And if this is something that matters to you, it's not a perfect measure. But this film passes the Bechdel test in like the first 10 minutes because they're just chatting about like what they're up to. I really like that as much as the film goes in, as we said, an aerial way, a bell way. Oh, she's special. She's not like the other girls in the tribe. She also like just has mates and has a life before any of the other stuff kicks off. She's not as much as she is rebelling against her dad, who's like, you have to marry this guy, and she's like, I don't want to marry that guy, which is again classic nineties Disney princess trope stuff. Every single one of these movies. Every single one of them. But not all of the other ones have like, oh, she's got a mate and they're just pals and they'd like hang around and do stuff. And obviously, her mate, who again, I can't find the name of her, even though she. It's Nakoma. It's Nakoma, Nakoma isn't it? Okay. <laughs> Nakoma, as much as Nakoma has a plot part to play later in the film and that dynamic becomes more complicated, that's just something that felt really fresh to me in this film, in this particular era that we're talking about.
1: Yeah, I wrote that down as well. Just has a female friendship. We do not get female friendships of any kind in these movies, in Disney movies. I'm trying to think. Like. I guess the fairies in *Sleeping and Beauty come to mind. Is that it? Like just two women who are friends with each other. <laughs> oh my God. If a woman has a relationship with another woman, it's usually either a kind of motherly figure or a nemesis. You'll have your fairy godmother and your evil stepmother and maybe some evil stepsisters. And that's pretty much it. So yeah, we get two girls who are friends and it's just normal and fine. So that's, that is a plus as well, yeah. Pocahontas is a very well-drawn character, a very well-animated character, and also a character who's been aged up a lot from what she was originally to allow her to fit into this Oscar-winning romance that they're going to have. And Katzenberg in particular seems to have been quite fixated on making Pocahontas hot. He apparently told Glen Kane, you have to make her the finest woman ever
0: made... <laughs> Oh, really? Really? Yeah. Was this during the massive Diet Coke party, or?
1: <laughs> he'd had a few too many DCs, <laughs> and he just went off on one. He said, you know what, hey, you're going to make her the finest woman ever made.
0: Oh, Katzenberg, oh, how we're going to miss you <laughs> until you come back with DreamWorks down the line. Flippin' heck. Well, she is the finest woman in the world to John Smith. Then let's talk about John Smith. And for me, this was the point when they established this romance where the film starts to wobble for me in terms of what it's trying to do. I was kind of worried watching this back that watching it with 2023 eyes, three decades or so after it was made that I might look back on this and go, oh, this is a really not very good depiction of indigenous American people. Oh no, how is it going to frame the British colonialist stuff? Are they going to make excuses for that? And I was impressed that in a lot of ways, it doesn't do that. It is attempting at least to give an authentic-ish portrayal of the Powhatan people. It is also not making apologies for... British colonialism. It is not dressing up what that was. It is greed. They are there for gold. They are taking land. They have outwardly racist views about the indigenous people. The film does not make any bones about that in a way that I was relieved about. But I think where it starts to get into trouble is in this Romeo and Juliet style romance with John Smith. Because from the beginning, they present John Smith as like, oh, he's the dashing guy. He dives into the sea to save Thomas. He is your, like, hero guy. On the one hand, from a purely film perspective, he does more, he has a bit more personality, he has more active, heroic acts, etc. than a lot of other Disney Prince-esque characters that we've had in these movies, who they tend to be the blankest blanks who have ever blanked. John Smith is not that, and yet... I think that is where the film starts to become unstuck because it has to portray, and I'm glad that they do, the horrors to an extent in a U-rated Disney film of British colonial forces and what that meant. It also has to set this guy up as a romantic lead. It has to present him as not being like the other guys as well, which then starts to get you into slightly icky territory. And... It's a shame that this is the area of the film where it just comes unstuck because I think outside of the historical context, literally on a pure film character level, the way it sets up two people from different worlds who meet and fall in love, we follow them and then together their love kind of stops a war breaking out, is a perfectly solid story. It's well told. You add in this specific context of... British colonialism, and indigenous American people, and suddenly that just starts to feel pretty icky.
1: Yeah, because that's what's been shoehorned in here. The Vaged Hour and that's part of that, but the main real deviation is there was not a romance here, and you are trying to tell a Romeo and Juliet story, one of the oldest, greatest story arcs in fiction, and you're trying to shoehorn that into, you're trying to use that as a template for this story about an actual thing that actually happened and it's they've tried to give themselves an easy job as storytellers basically by doing that like we anyone can tell a romeo and juliet story that's easy grappling with the realities of what actually happened and depicting the british settlers with any kind of nuance rather than just there are goodies and there are baddies that's hard that's difficult that's tricky they have gone the easy route and yeah john smith is like their vehicle for doing that
0: they're like he's a noble he's in it for adventure it, it, but he yeah. is complicit in this whole system as well
1: he's voiced by the quintessential hollywood hero one melanie gibson who you know like wow yeah like we'll just move on past that but i, I think yeah like the fact that they have got like the lethal weapon guy for this movie it says something about who this guy's supposed to be i wrote down a lot of points about him i'm having an american accent and then I, I was like watching bits back i was like does he have, what is his accent it's like Australian ingly american <laughs> and it's not really anything but i think it does separate him from the other characters who either have very obvious different working class british accents or very posh uh, receive pronunciation british accents and john smith's different right he uh like rougher he's more rough and ready and, and action hero than someone like ratcliffe but it also has this greater affinity almost as inbuilt affinity for like the american land which is kind of encoded into the americanness of that accent if indeed there is americanness <laughs> to that accent I, i'm not sure and then we have the mechanism whereby those characters are introduced which i think is the dumbest thing in the movie In a movie full of dumb things, listen with your heart and you can just, you can just understand, it's fine, you don't need to speak the same language.
0: Okay, let's rewind just a couple of minutes from that moment, because before then, the moment where these characters are meeting for the first time, John Smith is gonna shoot Pocahontas, he has a gun, and he is going to shoot her. Oh, okay, yeah, there's that too. The reason he doesn't shoot her is not just because she's a human being, she's another person, He's looking at her like, wow, she's hot. He's got Katzenberg eyes for Pocahontas, and it's like, oh, she's too beautiful for me to shoot her. The finest woman ever made. She's the finest woman ever made. If that was a male character, if that was in another circumstance, I feel like that character would have shot the indigenous person if it wasn't Pocahontas. It's like he stopped in his tracks by how beautiful she is. And this guy is still our like romantic hero and we yeah. have to root for him. We have to accept the other thing in terms of the set of Pocahontas with all the swirling leaves that her destiny is calling her towards something. The thing that it's calling her towards is this guy who was going to shoot her? What is happening? Well,
1: I don't know about that. I think the thing that it's calling her towards, because she doesn't go with him at the end, right? Right. So I think the idea is, and it is vague, even compared to the other Disney princesses, I think the I want song is just that, to kind of have an I want song, just around the river bend, but she's not singing about anything in particular. I think her destiny is meant to be like diplomacy and this role that she takes on as a mediator between these two cultures, but John Smith is how we get there. And yeah, minutes after he almost shoots her, she's listening with her heart, baby. (laughs) She's listening with her heart, he's listening with his heart and they just understand each other perfectly And it's dumb. I don't like how much magic there is in this movie in general. We've got that. We've got Grandmother Willow. There's like a shaman character who can conjure illusions or whatever. And then there's the bit during Savages where she's running to save John Smith. And it's like the spirit of the eagle lets her fly and stuff. I think that all cheapens the story that they're trying to tell. And it's like it's there because it's a fun magical fantasy disney movie will have to have some element of magic in there but it's a true story and it's supposed to be believable and associating the indigenous characters with magic is just another way of othering them of making them different and we talked about this a bit with camilla so i wish there was just no magic here whatsoever but this is the worst way in which it is utilized just ignore it all other like kids movies just ignore it and have them talking to each other right i would buy into that i think
0: it is my favourite version of them doing this that I've seen this year after Avatar The Way of Water, <laughs> yeah, where at the start that of that, perfect. Jake Sully is like, oh, it took me a while to like really get to know the Navi language as well as English but pretty soon we were just chatting like all oh, family and then quickly they just brush aside they're like we're all just talking english but we're actually speaking navi get on with it <laughs> it's like such a wave aside. this is the same thing like i don't know listen with your heart whatever they can all understand each other they have to be able to talk to each other in order for this plot to progress
1: yeah i mean okay so either just ignore it or have two characters that can't speak to each other and that's interesting and make that the movie yeah. And, and and that's another thing that they've got to overcome in order to be together and end this war whatever.
0: well I think it is as I said the John Smith side of things that adds some not great elements to this story or to the way that it is specifically trying to talk to actual history and very often mistold history at that the other thing is as I was saying John Smith is kind of set up as like well he's not as bad as the other colonialists which is not great in its own way but then in setting up governor ratcliffe as the main villain it also has to introduce this other degree of well he's the actual villain and all of the other settlers have been sold this lie of, oh, come here, we're going to get gold. And then we have that moment, that little shot of Ratcliffe. And he's like, ha really? I'm exploiting them and I'm going to get the gold. And it again sets things up in a way of like, well... Yeah, the indigenous American people are being exploited. But then also the settlers are being exploited as well, and the real villain is Ratcliffe. I don't know, it adds these extra layers that are, it's just not equivalent. You can't do that with this historical telling, you know?
1: Yeah. It's like everyone apart from Ratcliffe is just thick. And and racist, but also thick. That's kind of the narrative that's put forward a lot in the press around like racism today. And certain ways that certain elections have gone where the result was maybe a bit of a racist result right it's like the people who are, you know, are helping to make these racist decisions and prop up racist politicians they are also racist they might be thick and that might be part of it but racism is something we have to tackle there as well and this movie elides that in favor of just embodying all evil within this big purple
0: man I do like at least that they do show John Smith's assumed superiority over Pocahontas, and she extremely calls him out on that. That kind of, you call us savages, who you call a savage, basically. And I think it does a good job, as much as it tends to excuse some of the John Smith stuff to make him a romantic lead, it at least... Has Pocahontas specifically call him out on that, on his attitudes? They don't let him get away with that. But there's, they add so many layers in to make, oh, well, this person's not as bad as this person because really this yeah. person's the most evil and like, Ugh. so like,
1: like John Smith has a learning curve. Thomas has a learning curve. He has, he's got like a decent arc in the movie, plays a decent role. It's- yeah, he
0: learns not to fall in the sea at a certain point. Yeah. It's he true. learns that he can shoot people. God, Thomas. The worst.
1: It's Christian Bale. We'll have to say that. or we'll get tweets. It's Little, little Christian Bale is Thomas, and he's you know he's got a, he's he's got his own thing going on. Ratcliffe is just a big evil purple man who, in the grand canon of Disney villains, is way towards the bottom. Right? Like he is not fun at all to like watch or be around. And I guess he's not meant to be. He is just repugnant. He is the face of this like really vile real life enterprise so if we had him as like a very camp enjoyable character like Ursula or Scar then you know we'd be getting too close to liking this guy who we're not supposed to like but he doesn't have much else going on either I think Frollo in The Hunchback of Notre Dame is a much better example who has a lot of the same character traits and motivations as Ratcliffe but he is like a vile character who is still a good character and Ratcliffe is a vile character who doesn't have anything else going on that's just a bit boring yeah I mean what do you think of, of Ratcliffe as a villain
0: yeah I'm kind of with you on that I enjoy in some ways as much as everything that I've just said about the degrees to which it then tries to make some characters a bit more okay than others I thought it did a good job with Ratcliffe making him the physical embodiment of all the true horrors of colonialism. That he is very conscious of the fact that he is going out there, he's stealing land, he's chopping down trees, he's trying to take gold, he's trying to get rich, he is being greedy. I liked that they were really upfront about that, that, hey, the real evil here... uh, uh, Yes, we're channeling it into this guy, but the real evil here is colonialism. Mm. But as you say, then that means that they can't necessarily make him a fun villain character, and they shouldn't. It would be irresponsible of them to do that. At the same time, I mean, we're going to talk about the songs in just a minute, but I love what they do musically with these songs. And as I said before, having the settler songs be influenced by military music and, I don't know, songs like the the Dig, 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 Diggity Dig one... What are you up about, Ben? I'll, I really want you to be able to return to your
1: point. Uh, I know we're <laughs> going to talk about the songs later, but this is, and I, and I agree with what you're saying about it's cool, like the different types of instrumentation and melodies that they use with these songs and these characters. This is a bad song, man.
0: This is... You're telling me that they've not come up with better lyrics than dig, 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 diggity
1: dig. I think. We don't want to keep asking, like, what would Howard <laughs> Ashman have done? But he wouldn't have done dig dig diggity dig. <laughs> that's not that's not vintage Disney Renaissance lyrics. It's especially when you compare it to like oh, again, like maybe the character is not supposed to be fun, but like be prepared or poor unfortunate souls.
0: Sure. <laughs> dig, okay,
1: dig, diggity dig, mine, <laughs> mine, mine hey nonny nonny hey nonny nonny
0: (laughs) okay didn't love the hey nonny nonny was not about the hey nonny nonny
1: yeah it's shot of it it is not good it's like a song with an identity crisis too like is it the villain song is it the fun song because there isn't really a fun song in the movie maybe this is the most fun song in the movie but it's i I wasn't having fun because it's pants
0: (laughs) okay then look we are fully talking about the songs now if you're gonna (laughs) dunk on what's it called Mind, mind, mine i just want to call it it dig, is called dig, mine dig
1: dig. dig, mine. dig, 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 dig.
0: <laughs> if you're gonna dunk on that please you've got to let me have just around the river bend and colors of the wind which i know i guess in the wider pantheon aren't like tip top disney songs to me again this film was a massive one for me as a kid i watched this all the time so i love this film and i loved these songs as a kid i guess coming to it now i see that they don't seem to sit on that level that a lot of the other renaissance songs do but i think just around the riverbend and colors of the wind are pretty amazing musically melodically i love that they're ballads but they're kind of upbeat ballads they're just really beautiful and ethereal and i love those sequences please tell me you also enjoy these songs sam don't take everything away from me
1: No, they are good songs. I think Colors of the Wind, you say that they don't have the kind of footprint of the other big Stone songs. I think Colors of the Wind comes close. Like that's a well-known tune and it is good. That's the one that I've had stuck in my head this week. There's always one that I get stuck in my head the week that we're doing the podcast and I'm always singing around the house. And it's a great sequence as well. That covers the wind sequence. That's really something special. They're getting that like painted style, like the painted outlines of the, yes. the figures, the animal figures that follow Pocahontas around and of, of Pocahontas herself. But it I mean No. I, what are you what are you gonna say now? Uh, I, I just think it also lyrically embodies some of the kind of well-meaning but problematic issues that the movie has more sure. broadly. This is the song where pocahontas puts forward one of the main theses about why the indigenous people are superior to the settlers and it seems to be putting forward this idea that it's because they are not civilized in quotes it's because they are more attuned to nature it's because they are more in tune to the circle of life or it's a a circle it's a hoop that never ends i believe she says and this falls into what is actually a very old trope when it comes to the representation of indigenous people from all over the world, which is what we'll call the idea of the noble savage, which you may have heard of before. So, like, they are presenting the Poetons as, like, mystical, which I've already touched on, and uniquely attuned to nature, which is what this song is about. And that connotes a kind of moral superiority to civilised white people, but it's still a form of othering. It's still saying to quote savages they're not like you and me it's still saying they are different they are alien it's in a way that we are depicting as positive but it's still their difference and what are seeing as like essential characteristics of these people that they didn't even always necessarily possess like historically it's not like these people were staunch environmentalists like they lived off the land in their own way it's a different form of othering even though it's clearly well-intentioned it's it's depicting them in a positive way but still in an alien way still in a foreign way and it, it's in the kind of patronizing way i would suggest
0: i can see that i can see and we talked about that with camilla as well didn't we the yeah kind of generalization of well a lot of indigenous communities were at one with nature which isn't necessarily true I mean, we might have alluded to it before, though, but the Colours of the Wind shot, the big, swooshy, pastel colour shot, is maybe one of the most visually distinct things we've seen in a Disney film in a long time, I would say. Do you know what I think?
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's up there with like some of the really interesting stuff that was going on in some of those Lion King musical numbers. It's another example of them using the musical numbers as an excuse as an opportunity to deviate from the typical hyperreal disney aesthetic it's a musical number we're already suspending our disbelief we're already behaving expressionistically so let's let the visuals behave expressionistically as well and yeah this is one of the most successful and memorable examples of that
0: the other thing that i want to say is to go back to just around the riverbend again i loved that one as a kid and i love the sense of momentum in that song i used to feel the excitement as a kid as she's traveling down the river and as the melody of that is ramping up the excitement that it kind of starts in a sort of balladish way but when the chorus kicks in the tempo of the song speeds up she's washing along she's seeing these amazing things and you feel that excitement that driving propulsion i always got so swept up in the musicality of that and i think the visuals play a big part in that as well. Of All the creatures, the otters and stuff that are all swimming and they're all propelling themselves through the water as the song is ramping up. I really like these songs. (laughs) I think they just tap into my childhood in too big a way for me to be objective about in any sense.
1: That might be true. I think it is in these moments where you really see, oh yeah, this could have won Best Picture. There's a world in which this could have won Best Picture. Because the other thing is, like all of the criticisms that we're levelling at the movie aren't things that would have stopped it winning best picture it's not like well-intentioned but incredibly clumsy movies about racism have never won best picture before they're one of the academy's favorite genres it happens (laughs) all the time i think if the rest of the movie cohered a bit more and was a bit more enjoyable i think it would have had that shot because when you watch these sequences like oh yeah there is moments where this movie comes close to the sublime
0: Yeah, and when we're talking about enjoyable stuff in this movie as well let's talk about some of the side characters because we've spent various points of this podcast already mentioning Flit and Miko who were just my guys growing up Sam they were my guys Even though they don't speak, that gives you a lot of physical comedy. Miko is always shuffling around and shoving stuff in his gob and being kind of mischievous. Flit, you get so much personality of him, of he's just over everything that Miko is doing. And yet at the same time, these two are just complete pals. I really like those guys. They are great Disney sidekicks for me. Again, probably a lower tier in the grand scheme of the Renaissance. But I loved them as a kid. I love them now. They are just dudes. Guys being dudes, as we have said multiple times across Disney <laughs> Disneyversity. Okay, let's see how I can
1: do this without hurting you. No, what are you going to say? No, I think that they are good characters. Okay. I like watching them, sure. they are fun. Miko especially, he loves them biscuits. He loves those I like, biscuits. I like it when he eats the biscuits. We're a big fan of that rounder, yeah. But... I think they are good characters who make this movie worse. Does that make sense? I think the movie is worse for having them in it. I I've <laughs> failed
0: to see what you are getting at.
1: So, for example, it's it's almost my sin, Cinderella levels oh, of like come distracting on. antics. No, listen. There's there's a <laughs> sequence where Pocahontas and her father are having this like serious conversation which establishes both their relationship and the stakes for her from the start of this movie. And during this conversation, Flit and Miko were just titting about in the background doing <laughs> something I can't even recall. But we, we get long like close-up shots of them yeah. doing whatever, knocking stuff over, having a laugh. And we're listening to this genuinely important and thematically significant conversation in the background. Katzenberg didn't go far enough. I think he should have cut them out the movie. Whoa. It's a movie which wants to be a serious drama and yeah, it's got these characters and it doesn't cohere. And again, Hunchback, a movie which I massively prefer to this movie, okay. I think, haven't not really watched that in a while either. And we're going to talk about that next time. Has the exact same problem and arguably it's a lot worse in that film. <laughs> Here, it annoys me more because I think it just genuinely impedes on specific moments which should be more resonant than they are, but we're distracted from them because of all the raccoon business.
0: Yeah, I mean, raccoon business is the only business that I want to be involved in, uh, (laughs) in a general life sense. But no, I think this is a symptom of, we've discussed with some of the other films recently, it's like, oh, when things get a bit too serious, let's cut to the side characters. Like, Mufasa has just died. Oh my God, bring in Timon and Pumbaa. We've got to inject a bit of fun and energy again and, and bring the kids back up and have a fun song. This film doesn't do that because it is going for that kind of prestige thing, and it's dealing with very serious topics. And so instead of going like, oh, things have been serious for a while, let's have some japes, it's like, maybe let's have some japes while the serious stuff is also happening <laughs> at the same time. Yeah, and I think
1: Pocahontas... Mm-hmm. I'd be really happy for you to disagree with me on this Ooh, and talk okay, me out of okay. this. Okay. I think Pocahontas doesn't seem to have much of a relationship with these characters... Compared to, say, Aladdin and Abu who really bounced off each other. You felt like they've been mates forever. And Abu played a really significant role in the representation of Aladdin's character by being he's almost like his his id in a way. Like he's doing stuff that Aladdin kind of wants to do but wouldn't do. Like his demon, like you said. Like his dark materials demon. And I don't think. Pocahontas, it doesn't feel like she's been friends with these guys forever. I don't really get what their relationship is. I don't think it's established that well.
0: I agree with you. I just don't see that as a bad thing. I just don't think that's what these characters are here for. I think, yeah, it's not like they're her best friends because she has a human best friend, (laughs) you know, who uh, she's talking with at the start of the film. So they're not playing that role. They're not portraying her as a character. I actually also like the fact that as much as it works really well in the context of something like Aladdin, for this, they're not going, well, let's drive some of her characteristics into these animal characters and have them represent what's going on with her. Like, no, let's just build it into her as an actual character. And there is a lot of characterization in Pocahontas herself. So Hmm. I kind of like that, look, she lives in the forest. She is off kind of scampering around adventuring these guys are just around, and they're just titting about. I like the sense that Miko and Flit are friends in the same Mm -hmm. place as Pocahontas, but they're not necessarily (laughs) Pocahontas' best friends, only to the extent that she is best friends with everything in the forest, which, as you say, there is an additional overlay of issues of how that ties into her indigenous American identity. But also that is the most classic Disney princess trope there is friend to all the animals. So I agree, but I like it and I like them. And I'm going to say, I don't think nothing stood out to me as a Disney versity legend from this Mm. film. And in a film without Disney versity legends, I'm really glad that we just have these two vibey guys. Let me have that Sam
1: you can have it i mean they play a role miko especially like acts out the conflict in microcosm with percy the posh dog and then at the end they kind of swap clothes the executives hated that idea. One executive apparently exclaimed, animals don't have the intelligence to switch their clothes. They don't even have opposable thumbs. Animals don't
0: have clothes full stop, largely. A lot of dogs wear clothes these days. Yeah, Percy,
1: I kind of he dresses like you would dress a pug. Percy was originally, when the animals were going to speak, he was to be voiced by Richard E. Grant, by the way. Oh, that's excellent. Would have been good. Another voice actor who we missed out on having in this movie was Gregory Peck who was going to voice a character called Old Man River, who was the original idea for Grandmother Willow.
0: Okay, so what, it was going to be a talking river instead of a talking tree?
1: Yeah, or possibly in addition to, but yeah, Old Man Old Man River. I mean, that's a phrase I've heard before, I think, right? That's a thing people... Old Man River, that's a thing people say. It
0: probably would have sounded like that. To be fair, that's largely what Grandmother Willow also sounds like. Generic Old Man Yes. Voice. Again, a
1: bit of magic, that I don't think necessarily needs to be there. I think we could have scratched that completely. But some great visuals, like her kind of grove is incredibly attractive. (laughs) Ben made a face there that looked like he assumed I was about to say, I'm attracted physically to Grandmother Willow.
0: To Grandmother Willow's grove. (laughs) (laughs) well she is the
1: grove you know it's all it's all where does grandmother willow end (laughs) and the forest begin it's quite a frightening idea actually when you think about the potential scope of her power and influence. she is
0: probably part of a mycelial network that spans the entire continent
1: decent cgi work on grandmother willow plays an important role i guess
0: but a role that could have been given
1: to a human right there's no reason it has to be a tree apart from it's a disney movie so i have to have magic in it And it looks cool, I guess.
0: My one note on this is that as a kid, I felt like a genius when I understood the gag. My bark is worse than my bites. I remember probably watching this a lot of times and not getting that and then being like, oh my God, tree bark, genius. I am the smartest person alive. Yeah, okay.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Honestly, the script on this thing, man. The, the, The lyrics and the dialogue. Yeah, you're not a fan of the writing on this overall? It's just not one of their best scripts. And I think it it's because it spends too much time in that very earnest place with some very earnest characters. Because Pocahontas has to be a very respectable and dignified character, both because they're trying to pay respect to the actual character and also for the story to work, I guess. She doesn't get the opportunity to have some of the kind of funny lines that our other protagonists have had and our sidekick characters don't speak so our only verbal comic relief character is the tree and the tree puns and it's an old woman making tree puns and it's like come on it's not a great script and you know dialogue wise and I I do think lyrically as well I mean we'll, we'll work our way towards the ending of this film most of which most of the third act of this movie basically is made up in the song savages Which makes some choices in terms of the the sequence, visually, in terms of the lyrics, which I think are very much to the movie's detriment. It's not a terrible song, but I don't think it works. So like, this is another part of the film that's obviously well-meaning, but it's incredibly clumsy. Not least, well, I mean, most overtly because it is drawn equivalencies between the Indigenous characters and the settlers. Like, they are both prejudiced against each other. They both see the other team as savages. And that, even just the way in which they use that word, it feels like, yeah, okay, We all know that the settlers would have referred to the indigenous as savages. And yes, you might think you're doing something clever by saying that, well, actually, maybe we're the real savages. But that's a really loaded term, and you can't just throw it around like that. I'll quote an anthropologist on this, Pauline Turner-Strong, who said with regards to this song that... For many Native Americans, savage is the S word, as potent and degrading as the N word is for African Americans. You can't just throw that thing around because to us, it's just like, oh, yeah, something can be described as, as, as savage. You know, like, oh, we know what the settlers mean when they say savages. But to put that word, not only to repeat it as often that they do, but to put it in the mouths of the Powhatan characters is really irresponsible. So as Turner Strong continues, is savage more acceptable because it's used reciprocally? But then does this not downplay the role the colonial ideology of savagism played in the extermination and dispossession of indigenous people? Basically, there's something disingenuous about giving the Poetons an equal voice in the savages song. Yes, it makes a point about the ignorance of racism and the hypocrisy of racism, but it also draws this false equivalency, especially with regards to that word, which they sing over and over again in a song in a Disney movie, and the specific connotations that it has in this context.
0: Yeah, I think that's my issue with the finale overall. As much as I enjoy, again, in a completely decontextualized version of this story, the, hey, these two sides go into war, what if we all just stopped and took a breath, and Pocahontas throws herself over John Smith and says, let's all listen to each other, love can save the day, outside of the context of this history could be a solid way to end this film but it's the both sidesism of okay well there's yeah there's a lot of anger and a lot of violence on both sides and everybody needs to stop it just it is an oversimplification that i think doesn't work
1: Right, cuz they're trying to be Romeo and Juliet. And it works in Romeo and Juliet because it's it's the Montagues and it's the Capulets, you know who are they? It doesn't matter. They're both just rich bastards who hate each other, right? It doesn't matter who they are. They aren't different from each other in any significant way. That's almost why that story is so effective in that version to an audience, right? Because it doesn't have any kind of baggage. We don't really know the history of that and who's in the right and who's in the wrong. Now, if you compare this to West Side Story, you know another adaptation of Romeo and Juliet, which in many of its iterations obviously has been criticised for the ways in which it depicts the conflict between white Americans in New York and the Puerto Rican community. But that is a version of the Romeo and Juliet story which centres around racism and makes it very, very clear all the way through the end that even though there are aggressors on both sides, it's the white characters who are racist the final acts committed by the jets in that film are absolutely abhorrent and they aren't vindicated whether through their own actions or through this kind of both sides ism on the part of the storytellers and the songwriters in the way that they try to do with the settlers in this film as it's just like romeo and julia only works in this kind of context, if you follow through on the fact that one team
0: is worse. Yeah, and that ultimately one team and the grand sweep of history largely wins. I mean, this film has to give you an ending. It gives you the happy ending of Pocahontas saves John Smith's life. He is off on a ship back to Europe, having been shot, but he's okay, but he's got to go back and get medical help, otherwise he will die. <sighs> Which is, come on,
1: he's been shot and the what we need to do with this guy who's just been shot is put him on a wooden boat to England for like a month plus, (laughs) right? That's what we need, that's why he needs to go back to
0: England, to recover from a gunshot wound. He'd be dead before he gets there. As we've seen, that is a very bumpy journey. That is not an easy trip across the (laughs) sea. Uh, So, But it is trying to give us this happy ending... Because it's a Disney film and we have to see a positive resolution. In the grand scheme of history, things do not go well for the indigenous American people from here. And I don't know how they would get around that. I don't know what the solution to that is. But it can't help but feel
1: hollow you've got these characters like Smith and Thomas who need to reject the immoral aspects of the colonial ideology for the story to work for us to have anything close to a happy ending but that is historically inaccurate of course that's not what happens and also the wider issue with the film from a political point of view is that that is made to appear as a synecdoche for the wider colonial project because the film doesn't give us any proper historical context like we're not told what happens next in this story so based on how it ends what assumption does the film compel us to make what assumption does the film compel children to make right so the settlers change their attitudes they turn against ratcliffe and then what any kid will know that they continue to colonize america but the film doesn't do anything to dispel The implication that they're just going to be really nice about it from now on right so it gives us an ambiguous ending which is better than giving us an unambiguously happy ending but it's not an honest ending it reads like disney's attempt to construct or reconstruct a founding myth for america based around cooperation and opportunity but that was false then from a historical point of view and it's false now and that's the problem with the film you can't turn real historical events into simplified backpacking moral fables it's the problem with dances with wolves it's the problem with green book it's the problem with all of this crap right it paints a misleading rose-tinted view of the past and the issue is that that facilitates a misleading rose-tinted view of the present from people who watch it uncritically That's my piece on the film, right? There are things to enjoy about it. We have to give it a fair shake in the way that we give a much more racist movie like Peter Pan a fair shake. We talk about what's good about it. But like you really have to remember and pay attention to what's bad about it because if you don't, that's how misconceptions and stereotypes and prejudice propagate.
0: There we go. A Dr. Sam Summers mic drop, just like the animators (laughs) dropped the mic after that introductory shot of Pocahontas. Thank you. Thank you, Sam. That brings us to Discarded, the section of the show where we look back at the original tale the filmmakers drew from to explore the bits that didn't make the movie. Now, we're not going to dig into the real history much here because we talked about all of that stuff with Camilla earlier, but Sam, was there stuff that was originally intended for the film that then got cut along the way?
1: Yeah, I mean we've we've talked about Old Man River. Uh, we've talked about Richard Lee Grant. There was originally another sidekick, like back when they were going to have characters who talked, animal characters who talked. There was going to be a talking turkey named Red Feather. Oh yes, I like it already. Yeah, voiced by John Candy, okay. who was returning from Rescuers Down Under, and apparently characterized as a ladies' man. <laughs> That's all
0: we really know. He's a ladies' turkey.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so. Obviously, John Candy died while this movie was in production. Just generally, they made the decision to keep the sidekicks mute. So, Red Feather was retired. Red Feather lives on. There is some completed animation of Red Feather. Where? Where? (laughs) If you go to one of the many Disney Studios parks around the world, you will see a quite janky old attraction called The Magic of Disney Animation, which is a little bit of a sort of exhibition come video that you watch to teach you all about the history of disney animation circa whenever they made that thing (laughs) somewhere in the late 90s or early 2000s and then mushu is telling us the story of this from mulan so to kind of illustrate the point that a lot of these movies can change during production, they tell us the story of the animal characters being made mute and about Redfeather getting deleted from the film. And Red Feather turns up, he's wandering around in the background just to illustrate the fact that he once existed. And he gets turned into a roast turkey to illustrate the fact that he was excised from the film oh. and eaten off screen by Miko. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, love that <laughs> for Miko. Really happy for Miko. Yeah. He deserves a good dinner. He's been subsiding on biscuits for too long. <laughs> there was a song that got cut as well. Uh, there was a few songs that got cut, but the main one, If I Never Knew You which was 90% animated before being deleted for being boring to child audiences, which is the same trick they tried to pull with Part of Your World. The difference is this one is legitimately incredibly boring. Uh, (laughs) This was going to take place while John Smith was imprisoned by the Poetons, and it is still in the film because a pop version of it is sung over the end credits, but they finished this sequence, and it's on the DVD, so you can watch it on YouTube if you want to go to sleep.
0: (laughs) Okay, so a couple of things that didn't make it in. In terms of the finished film, what did critics say at the time? Did this go down well? I know this was a step down from the last few Renaissance movies. Was it generally well-received at the time, or did people pick up on... A lot of the stuff that we've talked about of how we view this film, you and I, in 2023. Do people pick up on that stuff as much in 1995?
1: I mean, people picked up on the problematic stuff, yeah. Like Aladdin, its reception was also marked by a backlash from those whose culture it depicts they did do their best in the wake of the aladdin backlash to try and address some of that stuff this time but um for example you've got chief roy crazy horse of the poetan runner nation so one of the descendants of the tribe depicted in the film who said that the movie distorts history beyond recognition and claims that disney rejected his offer to assist with cultural and historical accuracy that wasn't the critique across the board the actors who were in the film spoke very highly of it so russell means who was a an activist in his own right as well as playing the chief in this film praises it calling it a stunning admission of the historical crimes of european settlers in a highly visible commercial context which we kind of touched on right at the start like it is honest about what they did even if it's not necessarily honest about how it went And I think Irene Bedard made a great point as well when she said she used to be called Pocahontas as a kid by bullies. Pocahontas was used as an insult. And she hoped that this film would change that for little girls, that Pocahontas would be something to aspire to, not to run away from. And maybe it succeeded. I'm sure it did succeed on that level for a lot of people. Yeah, more generally, movie critics weren't hugely impressed other than by the quality of the visuals which I think is inarguable. Entertainment Weekly said it was the first of the new era Disney cartoons that feels less than animated. And Roger Ebert says, on a list including Mermaid, Beauty, Aladdin, and Lion King, I'd rank it fifth. And that's the general consensus, right? It's it's the worst of those movies. Critics have remained stale on it. It's one of only eight Disney movies with a rotten score and rotten tomatoes, for what that's worth. Really? Yeah, the only one from the Renaissance with a rotten score. That is interesting.
0: Uh, most of those aids we have yet to encounter, <laughs> you wouldn't be surprised to learn. Yeah, I mean, as much as I watched this a lot as a kid and there's a lot that I still like about it and I wasn't quite as horrified as I thought I might be going back to this film, I think it's undeniably not as good as Beauty and the Beast or Little Mermaid or The Lion King or Aladdin. It's just not as good, and that is fine. But was it a box office hit? I mean, it can't have been Lion King big. Nothing was Lion King yeah. big. Yeah. But did this at least make a decent amount of money? I mean, it had a lot to live up to, and Disney tried their best to make it
1: live up to it. They did one of the wildest publicity stunts they've ever done. They booked out basically the entirety of Central Park to host what is by miles the biggest movie premiere in history, with 100,000 people in attendance watching Pocahontas across four giant screens. And it was preceded by an extravagant performance of songs from previous films starring many of the actors and musicians who worked on those earlier Renaissance movies and a two-hour live TV special. Oh, no. But two hours before they started watching the movie, they had newscasters talking about Disney and showing little documentaries about Disney and showing the performances and talking to people on the ground in Central Park. It's so hard to imagine anything like that <laughs> happening today imagine
0: it's like a disney (laughs) festival all across central park for this film that has generally gone down in history it's like
1: yeah it's not great (laughs) exactly but they they were trying to make it feel like it was the next big thing they were trying to make it feel like it was going to be bigger than the lion king to encourage people to go and see the shoe fire phenomenon and it did underperform it made 141 million domestic and 346 million worldwide by comparison remember lion king made 760 million on its first run so it's It's nowhere close. It's
0: nowhere close, but considering Lion King is Lion King, for the mid-90s, that's still a pretty whacking amount of money. It is.
1: I mean, it made less than Aladdin and more than Beauty and the Beast. So it's kind of mid-tier for the Renaissance movies so far, but it is like the start of a downward trajectory in general in terms of the box office for these things. And it never did win that Oscar for Best Picture or get nominated. It won Best Song for Colors of the Wind and i do just quickly want to mention this because i think it's fascinating it won best musical or comedy score an award which no longer exists and which only existed then because of the four wins for disney musicals over the last six years in the best original score category they changed the oscars because they were sick of disney winning best original score they added best musical or comedy score so that all the disney musicals would have to be nominated for it even though none of them ended up getting nominated for it after pocahontas and, and this only lasted for four years
0: <laughs> you can't beat alan menken whatever shape-shifting you do alan menken will be there and he will win awards that is a promise yeah. okay then very quickly what is your rating of this sam i i get the sense you don't love this one I don't. I liked it more than I
1: remembered liking it in the past. I'm more likely to revisit sequences of it after this, I think. I mean, it looks really, really good. It just doesn't feel like much happens. Like, even in terms of the structure of the plot, it's not much of an adventure. No one really goes anywhere or does anything. It's just a little bit of back and forth, arguing the same points. It's very repetitive. Like, for all the scope and the beauty of the landscape, we spend most of the movie in three settings. We're either at the Settlers' Camp, the Poeton Village, or Grandmother Willow's Grove. That's all we see apart from in those couple of epic musical sequences. Yeah, it feels slight, even though everything about it is so epic. Like, in reality, when you actually look at what happens in the movie, it's it's not a great deal, and it's just not not a favourite for that reason. Come on, then. What's he star rating? Oh it might be three three and a half in that kind of zone it's it's
0: easily the weakest Renaissance film isn't it that is higher than i thought you were going to give it and do you know what i think objectively i would be like a three i think just with the pure context of how much i watched this as a kid i can't divorce myself from that context i am really like a three and a half on this It's interesting you saying that it feels slight, because also the other thing is this film is short. This film is like 72 minutes or so, and at the moment, like all these Disney films are sub-90 minutes, but Lion King, I think, was maybe about 84. It had at least another 10 minutes on the runtime compared to this. I think you're right. This does feel quite short. It doesn't have a huge amount of additional complications, but I really like a lot of the songs. Including the digging one. I mean, no, it's not the best one. But Colours of the Wind and just around the riverbend are great. I think it looks absolutely stunning. I love the purple. I love the trees. I love Flit. I love Miko. But it is undeniably not as good as that other run of films. I think 3.5 is perfectly respectable. Uh, There's a lot of good stuff in it. There's also a lot of stuff that is very ill-advised now I don't think the romance stuff works I think that massively complicates what it's trying to do on a historical level but I was prepared to watch this again and be like oh oh no I Mm. like loved this as a kid and you watch it now and it just plays so badly and it was not that it was not that so yeah three and a half from me
1: I mean, visuals go a long way for me, I should say, when it comes to my star rating. It's it's mainly because it looks so good. And I am now inclined to take off half a star, because you remind me of the Mayan song. No. Diggity, dig it, dig, dig your grave and put that song on I'm going to
0: dig, dig, dig up your half star, and I'm going to go four stars <laughs> now. That's how that works. <laughs> okay, that then brings us to Lasting Legacy, because... A Disney movie is never just a Disney movie, and in the world of straight-to-DVD sequels, theme parks, live-action remakes, crossover movies, and more, there's a whole universe out there for each character. Sam, what are we talking about when we come to the lasting legacy of Pocahontas?
1: I mean, there's a notable drop-off from the last four movies, or, well, the last five, not Rescue Us Down Under, we always have to do that, from the last four proper Renaissance movies, which had spin-offs galore, there's a notable drop-off here, so there's a video game, Pocahontas for the Sega Genesis, which has a pretty cool mechanic where you switch on the fly between Pocahontas and
0: Miko, who both <gasps> have different abilities. Oh my god, I love they go, okay, obviously you're playing as Pocahontas, but we should probably have another character you can play as. Should that be John Smith? Should that be the tribe leader? Should that be Pocahontas' mate? No, it's gotta be Miko. He's chasing biscuits. He's running around. Yes, all about that decision.
1: And it's, it, it's made its mark on the parks in a few ways many of which are now defunct so my favorite might be animal kingdom had a show called pocahontas and her forest friends where an actress playing pocahontas shows off some live animals a raccoon absolutely a raccoon And other animals, they kind of rotated it. You never knew quite what you were going to get. So you might get a snake or some rabbits or some possums, a skunk, a porcupine, rats, and a turkey. Red feather (laughs) returns. (laughs) So animals, great. But my favorite thing about this is there is an original character exclusive to this show. There's a pretty good Grandmother Willow puppet. It's okay. fairly impressive to recreate. But she has a friend, a new character, a young tree called Sprig. He's this little tree that like wiggles around. He's really annoying. He's, he's horrible. But I'm really glad he's there. That there's like an original canon Pocahontas character that you only find at this now defunct stage show.
0: Was it played by a human man wiggling around? Is it a puppet? What What is it? <laughs> it's a
1: puppet. It's it's a big wiggly puppet of a stick. <laughs>
0: Please put this guy on Twitter.
1: I will put him on Twitter. He's got a very annoying, like high-pitched, kiddie voice, but it's like, I almost want to throw a Disneyversity legend at him just for existence. <laughs> I mean, I'll not make you get the trumpet out on this He's occasion. He's not quite official. Just bear it in
0: mind. <laughs> That's not the official Disney Disneyversity legends mouth trumpet.
1: So there's also been a live stage show in several of the parks called The Spirit of Pocahontas, which retells the film. And Frontierland in Paris has a kids' playground called Pocahontas Indian Village, which is wrong because we probably shouldn't be calling it Pocahontas Indian Village today. And also because Pocahontas is obviously not set in the Wild West, where the rest
0: of Frontierland takes place. That is the whole point. They're digging for gold that is not there it's in it's out west absolutely but
1: obviously the biggest thing is pocahontas to journey to a new world of problematic depictions and historical misrepresentations okay
0: so i haven't seen this straight to dvd sequel straight to video sequel does this do the john rolf part of the story then does this tell effectively the rest of the Pocahontas story? It does and in a way that kind of makes
1: it a more enjoyable movie than most of the other sequels which are usually retreads with the kids of the characters or they're like midquels that don't really move the story forward. Here they are restricted to loosely what actually happened next to Pocahontas so it by necessity has to move her story forward and put her in an interesting new environment. But also, it's Disney adapting the story of Pocahontas being taken to London by John Rolfe, so it's dodgy as hell. I'll try and get through it fairly quickly with a little synopsis. It opens with Ratcliffe. He's back. He's back in the good graces of the king. He's managed to convince the king that John Smith was the traitor, who has now recovered from his gunshot wound, only to be thrown into the River Thames by Ratcliffe in revenge to get him off the scene. Also, it needs to get him off the scene because Pocahontas needs to think he's dead so she can get with her real-life husband, John Rolfe, right? Because they spend so much time and effort in that first movie making this the greatest love story ever told that they need to do a lot of work to move her onto a new guy, and it's not successful, even if that guy is voiced by Billy Zane. (gasps) It's
0: your good friend, Billy Zane, voicing John Rolfe. (laughs)
1: Good friend Billy Zane. Classic, one of cinema's great love triangle interlopers, Billy Zane. Also, voicing John Smith, we have Mel Gibson's brother. Who knows what his opinions are, so <laughs> don't have to dance around him. Notice. So, Pocahontas travels to England with Rolf, which in reality happened after they were married and then this happens during, well, before they even really get to know each other, in order to negotiate with King James and prevent war between their people. Again, not what happened. She was brought over basically as a PR exercise for the Virginia Company to try and make this seem like it was a viable mission for them to be going on. Look, we've managed to civilise somebody. We've managed to civilise a savage. So the king decides that he will go to war with the Poetons because Ratcliffe is in his ear unless Rolf can prove that Pocahontas is civilised, which is just a horrible premise for a movie. Let's make the goal of this indigenous character to come across as a a civilised English wife. It's my fair lady with racism as well as classism, basically, is what it is. So there's a fancy ball that they go to with a bizarre set piece in which some very freaky clowns torture a bear
0: Okay, like because there was freaky bear circuses at the time, historically?
1: Well, in this case, it's a plot from Ratcliffe to goad Pocahontas into acting like a savage. He knows she loves bears, apparently, so he gets a bear out and tortures it. and He's baiting the bear, but he's also baiting Pocahontas, and there's clowns involved. So she gets imprisoned, and then John's Rolf and Smith, who is alive, surprise, team up to break her out. The love triangle is kind of interesting because you've got the more upper class and proper Rolf versus the more rough and ready Smith and she chooses Rolf in the end because she has to and in the movie it's because he supports her confronting the king to save her people whereas John Smith tries to convince her to run away with him. Wow, he's really just in it for himself. Yeah, he's a bad bloke in this movie at the end of the day, John Smith. Like he comes to her raid in the final battle and all that but like he has some bad opinions. So this doesn't ring true as a viewer because the movie the first movie sets pocahontas and john smith up as this epic romance and her and rolf's relationship in the sequel just feels rushed You just have to get to the end of this very short very low budget movie with these characters together because that's what happens in real life and just like in real life the film ends with pocahontas and rolf sailing back to Virginia off into the sunset to reunite her with her people and this is chronologically the last that we see of Pocahontas in the Disney canon which is tragically appropriate because in real life almost immediately after the ship set off Pocahontas took gravely ill and died so it just hammers home how much of a terrible idea this entire enterprise is right in real life she didn't sail off into the sunset with her beloved husband to be reunited with her people she died aged 21 and was buried in england an ocean away from her home an ocean away from everyone she loved they again give us this ambiguous ending in order to suggest that something else happened but no she was a victim of this process that ensnared her she was taken to england to promote the virginia company she died of a disease she contracted in england miles away from her life you know like well done everybody that's how her life ended and that's how the movie ended it's it's just still right up until the end trying to whitewash this story in a way that is more offensive than the original in its own way so not one of my favorite disney straight to video sequels i will say
0: no that is probably the most in-depth breakdown of a disney straight to video sequel that as you say there is history for it to follow but the path that they set out from this original pocahontas movie that is just spiraling further and further outwards as they get into straight to video territory there's no coming back from that there is no coming back from that And that is it for this week's class. Join us again for our next seminar as we head off to Paris for a dark chapter in the Renaissance era, getting to know Quasimodo and co. in The Hunchback of Notre Dame. A film that I have never seen. Oh! You mentioned someone before called, like, Folly. Rollo. Frollo. Frollo. A mix of both. I'd already thought, I don't think I've seen Hunchback and Notre Dame, but you said Frollo and my mind was like, nope. I don't think I've seen this one <laughs> at all. Very intrigued to get into it. We have a very exciting guest for that one as well. I can't wait for you to meet Frollo. <laughs> I already I feel like Frollo might be a TDLF. From the name alone is my guess. But that is for next time. In the meantime, if you've enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can find us on all the usual platforms. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram where we'll be sharing Sam's pick of the best moments from the film and images and context, tons of stuff. Please do go and follow us on social media. And if you fancy dropping us a little review, Sam will deliver you a bespoke piece of artwork by way of a thank you. And I can assure you, he paints with all the colours of the wind. Oh, nice. I was not sure where you were going with that. (laughs) My bark is worse than my bite. (laughs) I was really in my like grandmother willow quality of writing (laughs) when I wrote the script, Sam. But for now, it is goodbye from Sam. Goodbye. It's goodbye from me. Plus, thanks again to Camilla Townsend for her time. Really enjoyed her contributions on this pod. Thanks for listening, everybody. Catch you next class. Disneyversity is brought to you by Ben Travis and Sam Summers. Our artwork is by Ollie Gibbs and our music is by Nefetz. Follow us at Disneyversity on Twitter and Instagram and catch you for next week's class.